The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies. And fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Are we having fun yet? Yes, we are, Don. Yes, we are. <laughs> and tonight, we're going to be talking about American comic books. Yes, we're finally getting around to the American <laughs> comics, folks. We hit Japan first because we're a couple of Japanophiles, but I guess it's time for us to mosey on back to the homeland, well, North America anyway, and talk about American comics which uh, Don and I, of course, both grew up with being a couple of good Canadian kids and mm. because there were no good Canadian comics for us to read. I actually grew up with a lot of European stuff, but okay. Okay, well, there's that too. <laughs> oh, it's still no good Canadian comics for us to read. Sorry, Captain Canuck. <laughs> Our, and That's not nice. <laughs> I know, I know. Actually, I think there is a book in the library. I remember seeing about Canadian comics. I think there mm -hmm. is an actual book about them, but they're yep. just, they just it never really took off. Canadian, that book is probably the one written by uh, Clive Smith, the guy from think, uh, Headed Up Nirvana. Yes, yes, it is, I think, actually. Yeah, mm -hmm. I do vaguely remember that. Yeah, I think it is. I haven't looked, read it in a long time because it was that was an old book. Yeah, yeah, it was early 70s. Yep, yep, that's the one I'm thinking of because it has a lot of time, because uh, it spends a lot of time on uh, Captain Canuck, of course. And uh, was it Nelvana? Is that Nelvana like, the Ether People. Yeah, Nirvana of the Ether people. Yep. Hear and that, folks? We Canadians have really messed up comics. <laughs> and they talk about Bell. Bell was kind of the, uh, back in like the, the golden age, Bell was kind of like the Canadian comic book publisher. I vaguely know about them. But, you mm. know, maybe we should see if we can find a scholar on Canadian comics at some point and actually talk about them. I think that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. We could because it's funny when you when you go through that and you find out the history of Canadian comic books. Mm -hmm. I'm actually related to a Canadian comic book character. You are Superman? No. Okay, which one? No. They uh they did a a book and it was a uh, kind of like a biography on Angus McCaskill. Mhm. Mm who's the Cape Breton giant? Right? And they did comic stories of some of his his stuff and he's like a like a distant cousin of mine. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So if he was the giant of Cape Breton, why are you so short? <laughs> well, you've met my family. All my family are little tiny people. Tiny, but stocky and tough. Yes, mm. yeah, that's definitely true. Enough about Canadian comics. Let's talk about American comics. Mm. So, Don, um, I suppose we should probably do this chronologically. So, yeah. um, but before we want to begin... I guess there's two things we should cover. First, I think you had a disclaimer, and then we're going to talk about um, how exactly we're going to divide up the different periods of comic books, because I think we should get that out of the way right at the beginning. Yes. So, okay, disclaimer time. Go. Yeah, there's kind of two things to remember, especially if you've... I'm, I'm going to compare this a lot to our, our episodes on the Japanese comic industry. Um, one thing with the the American comic industry that happens is... 
Whereas the Japanese one worked in waves that you'd have somebody would do something. Everybody would do that. That would be the big thing, but there'd be this undercurrent of almost the opposite. And then at some point interest in the main thing would wane. And that other thing that was the opposite would move into the foreground. Uh, American comic books kind of go event to event to event. Mm -hmm. A lot of the events are something outside of the industry as well. It has nothing to do with comic books, but something will happen. And then that defines what everybody does. Right. And the other thing to keep in mind, uh, because of that, what ends up happening just after World War II, American comic books have a mainstream, mm-hmm. which means that there's there's kind of kind of one rabbit that everybody is chasing. Mm-hmm. Now there's other stuff that's going on, and this is kind of the second part of of the disclaimer. I think we should put out there. There's other things going on. But um, they never reach the scope that the mainstream stuff does. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So, yeah, so like uh, people our age would, might remember um, like the black and white boom of the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And there were companies that they got a lot of press, they got a lot of popularity for independent comic books, but they never reached like the numbers that say your Marvel, your DC, or your Archie, or that hit. Mm-hmm. Definitely, With, yeah. With a few exceptions, like the Ninja Turtles took off, but the Ninja Turtles wasn't straying too far from the mainstream um, adolescent male superhero kind of formula. Mm, it very much wasn't, yeah. And there's a catch to that too when we get to, to that era as well. But that's the that's that's a thing to remember. And because of that, there's a lot of stuff I don't think we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. And... I don't mean that like anybody listening, anything we leave out this, this, I don't want to say background stuff, but your alternative stuff, Mm -hmm. it's not because it's not important and it's not because it's not worthwhile. It's because you've got this giant machine of a mainstream comic book industry that kind of squeezes stuff out. Yep. That's very true. So even if we get to the undergrounds, we're probably not going to do a lot on like the undergrounds or the independents. It's part of the formula that adds to it. But it's not, it, it, it's, again, it's dwarfed by this giant monolithic mainstream. And a lot of that stories unto itself. Like if you've, if you've heard our episodes with Jeff and uh, Ed, they worked in the independent branch of the comic. And there's a whole ton of stuff going on. But it never mm-hmm. quite hits that proportion that this indomitable mass that, you know, was mainstream comics was. Does that mean we're not going to talk about Cherry Pop-Tart? <laughs> Again, that works its way into a lot of our episodes. <laughs> Cherry's awesome. Oh, oh wait, I mean, um, I, I've heard it's awesome. I've never read it, of course. That would be wrong. Um, and way before my time, I think maybe. Anyway, all right. So neither here nor there. All right. So, okay. um, so so in that case, okay. So the other thing, I, as I said, we should probably get out of the way is what exactly the comic errors we're going to be working with are. Because there's some standard definitions. And then I know, Don, you have your own definitions of exactly where the errors break up. I mean, (laughs) people use metals to describe the different comic ages. Mm. Um, The general comic historian version runs like this. The first period is called the Golden Age, and it runs till about 1954. Some people say it starts with the first appearance of Superman in 1938. Mm -hmm. Some people say it starts a little earlier, um, but it generally runs until 54 because that's when we have the Senate subcommittee, which we'll talk about in a bit. 
Yeah. Um, then after that, we've got the basically the Silver Age from 56 to sometime in the 70s. It's generally considered to be that period. Mm-hmm. Then the Bronze Age from sometime in the 70s until 86, when uh, the Dark Knight returns and Watchmen get published and everyone loses their minds over dark Batman stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, suddenly we enter the Dark Age of comics. Oh, sorry, I mean the modern <laughs> age of comics, which some people will say goes till today. But there are a lot of people who say that's not exactly correct anymore. That we've gone through, a, we've gone through a couple of periods since then. Mm-hmm. How do you say, Don? How say you? Okay, um, and this is another one of those things. I think when we divide it up into into errors, it's it's mostly just to corral certain ideas so that they're easier to study. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody out there, try not to get like I say too wrapped around the axle about the the specifics. It's more to facilitate looking at what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. Um, to that end, I kind of go by the the standard, and you got to remember the standard kind of changed in the eighties because when you got to the nineteen eighties, that's when people sort of started taking comic books seriously, mm-hmm. and you ended up with a lot of industry analysis, and they needed some way to to, to gauge things. There was a tendency for a lot of people to have their in like who commented on the industry to have their heads so far up their own ass they needed like an orthodontist to have their pro their uh, prostate checked mm-hmm. things like that so it 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 gets there's all kinds of weird things but i usually go i go pre-comic book mm-hmm. i go golden age mm-hmm. i go silver age mm-hmm. bronze age Modern age, which was like 30 years ago, but that's what they called it back then. Postmodern, post-postmodern, because I can't think of a better term, and current. Mm -hmm. And uh, basically the way I see it is each era, it works kind of like when we talked about the history of role-playing games. Mm -hmm. The first half and the second half of each era are different, but I... You'll see how when I get into it, I divide things the way I do because there's one kind of idea that unifies that and then something different happens to it during the process. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's a transition. All right. Yeah. Um, All right. So we might as well get started then. So as far as we know, the very, very first comic published in the United States was The Adventures of Obadiah Oldbuck. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, in 1842, which was actually a pirated copy of, uh, of a, what is it? The Loves of Monsieur Dubois a, by Randolph Toppler. And mm-hmm. it was, yeah, it was done without Toppler's authorization. So it truly was a, a bunch of public bootleg comic books that were uh-huh. very popular. This is 1842 we're talking here. Yeah. Um, and then... They were reprinted on a regular basis with Toppler probably not getting an actual penny. But it mm-hmm. was popular enough that in 1849, there was a probably ripoff of it or something to that effect called Journey to the Gold Diggins by Jeremiah Sandbags. And this was by James A. and Donald F. Reed. And this is generally considered the very first American comic to come out. Now, when we say comic, we don't mean comic book. This, of course, is probably something closer to a comic strip in form. And back then, they usually were pictures with captions as opposed to an actual word balloons or uh, comic dynamic as we understand them anyway. Yeah, there's there's kind of a couple of... Um, like, I think you can go back a little bit further. 
Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, without losing the without losing the thread. Um, a lot of people say the the origin of comic books proper mm-hmm. goes to a 1734. Oh, okay. And, and that was William Hogarth's uh, "A Harlot's Progress." Mm-hmm. He did oh, that, yeah. and then next year he did a Rake's Progress, and they weren't exactly comic books. They weren't comic strips. They were a series. I think there was six paintings for six illustrations for each. Mm-hmm. And what they did is you viewed them in a certain order and it kind of told a story. Yes. And that was what's kind of, and that's why I say it's, it's kind of the origin. It puts that idea of pictures in sequence to right. tell a story. And it plays upon that notion of completion. Mm-hmm. That idea that the actual story is happening entirely in your brain. The pictures are sort of suggesting where it goes. Right. And that's the basis of what a comic book is. Right. Makes um, sense. Yeah. A couple of years later, you get uh, Wilhelm Busch, mm-hmm. 1865, does a series called uh, Max und Moritz, mm-hmm. which, again, people consider the beginnings of comic books, but it's closer to, um, I don't know the technical term, I refer to it as illustrated story. Mm-hmm. If you remember, like, um, the old Babar books. Right. Or right. Rupert the Bear, mm-hmm. that it would be a, a picture, and there'd be pictures in sequence, but there'd be no captions or word balloons. It would be the narrative, like you'd write prose, like you'd write a story underneath each picture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Describing dialogue and action. Right. Well, children's books sometimes, even still today, use that formula. Yep. And that again takes that idea of pictures and sequence, but now it adds narrative to it. Mm-hmm. So you're starting to get closer to the idea of, of comic book. And that's the era of, of uh, what you were talking about. Yes, the loves of Monsieur Dubois. Uh, but that would be 1842. So that would still predate. And yep. apparently it was very popular, actually. Of uh, It would still predate what you're talking about. But again, they're both threads on the same line. Yep. And, and the other thing that's important is that idea of collecting them. Mm. That that back in like the uh, like mid to late 1800s, that was really popular. Um Essentially, what they were was Tankoban. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. And we we had that here too. Anybody who say our age might remember going to the bookstore and you get like a paperback, but mm-hmm. it would be a collection of like Wizard of Id or BC or Garfield or whatever. Yep, I had a bunch of those. That's kind of the same idea. That's 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 what these these books were. Mm-hmm. It was these 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 stories, these illustrated stories. In book form. And again, it's not quite a comic book, but it's edging us closer towards that idea. Right. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. And as it would continue on, of course, uh, eventually this would be influenced heavily by the rise of the, uh, well, mag- originally magazine strip and eventually yep. newspaper strips that would appear. Yeah. Um, with uh, the most famous eventually being um, Hogan's Alley. Mm. Okay. By Richard F. I can never figure out how to pronounce his name. It's Outcult, I guess. Yeah. It's O U T C A U L T. Yeah. Outcult? Occult? Yeah. Richard Occult? occult. Maybe, maybe it should be Occult. <laughs> I don't know. It's Outcult, I'm going to go with anyway. That's um, what it looks like. Yeah, yeah pretty much. And uh, he basically began creating these characters in 1894. Um, and in the New York world, they first mm-hmm. appeared. Um, he'd originally created them for Truth Magazine, but eventually that. And originally they were these full-page drawings of all these, like, 
basically street urchins having uh, <laughs> hilarious shenanigans and doing things. And it was kind of like one of those um, family circus cartoons. No, not family circus. What? Oh, family circle cartoons. Wasn't it yeah. family circle? Family oh, circus. circus. It's it family was family circus. circus. Okay. It's been a while. It was like one of those family circus cartoons where you follow the kids through like all this maze of jumping over fences and going through houses and all this stuff that we used to get when we were kids. Mm-hmm. Well, it's basically kind of like one of those, except they're street urchins who are starving to death and having hijinks <laughs> in their in Hogan's Alley. Yeah. Um, and one of these lovable little street urchins um, would soon be known as the Yellow Kid, which was mm-hmm. actually named after his uh, shirt because he wore a night- yellow nightgown. And yeah, he was, he was a bald kid in this like full-length shirt. Yep, who looks horribly and stereotypically Asian, but is actually supposed to be Irish. He looks Asian depending on how he's drawn and how well it's reproduced. Mm. Like if, yep. if if you see high quality reproductions of a lot of stuff, he's this really generic. Well, he's a homo sapien, but I'm not sure of the exact species kind of thing. Yeah, he actually kind of, in a lot of pictures, he looks almost more like a monkey. He's got these giant ears. Mm. He's, he's the, if, if, if you've seen him and you know what he looks like, he becomes the stereotypical goofy kid. Yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah, the kid with the big ears and, like, the goofy yep. grin and stuff. Yep, yep, that would be him. Yeah. And uh, he actually became so popular well, that he was basically the very first that we know of, anyway, comic book mascot craze kid, basically. I mean, he literally um, sold so many papers that the New York world um, fought a war over him with uh, William Randolph Hearst. Yeah. Um, and was it the American humorist is what you're getting? Yeah, at. the American humorist. There we go. Uh, who's who had the rival paper, the New York Journal, and he managed to in, 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 entice Outcult away to work for the New York Journal, stealing him from the New York World, and mm. it caused all sorts of problems. Yeah, there's there, there's an extra kind of I don't know if it's a step, but an extra circumstance there mm. because uh, the World was run by Joseph Pulitzer. Yes. And he came up with the idea of the Sunday supplement. And the world the world was the mm-hmm. first the world was the first one that did that. And the idea was it had more illustrations, it had color. That's where the, the comics really came in. Mm-hmm. And that was why Occult could do these big full page things. Because it was it was to sell the, the it was to sell the Sunday supplement. Right. Uh, William Randolph Hearst, the American humorist, was kind of his version of Right of the Sunday supplement, and he had um, he he again. They brought in different cartoons. He got out cult from them. Uh, they also did the Cats and Jammer Kids. Right, yeah, and they would have okay. And we're going back to eight. This is eighteen ninety seven. Eighteen ninety five was the Yellow Kid. Mm. Um, these are important because American comic books and newspaper strips have a common origin, but they go different places in a hurry. Yes, yes, they do. Uh, this is their common origin. One of the things that the yellow kid did is on his giant shirt, what he was thinking or saying would be written on it. Mm, basically, his word balloon, pretty much. Yeah. The Cats and Jammer Kids is kind of the first comic strip that you would look at and go, well, that's a comic strip. Mm. It's laid out like a comic. It's got word balloons, which word balloons people have been kind of experimenting with before. Mm-hmm. 
if you've ever seen like an old timey like 1800s comic though they're these weird cramped little things and they go at strange angles right because right. they sort of just squeeze it in and they're hard to read and i can only imagine with the printing techniques of the day these were probably impossible to read pretty much yeah they would have been yeah. so fuzzy yeah but the cats and jammer kids is kind of the first one that they 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 were i guess legible i guess and that's why they're considered the original comic well, they had strip. better printing techniques at that point yeah but they're but when you see them too they're laid out different they're laid out what we call they're simple but they're clean right that's true and that's that's a that's again a big part of it when you look at like uh out cult or everybody's seen uh from the late 1800s you've seen political comics that they're all these like wood grain scratchy super fussy cross hatched things mm. that's true yeah and uh they look really weird but that's again printing techniques it yeah. all came to um they were oh geez i'm trying to remember what point that they actually developed print the ability to actually put pictures into uh, newspapers and such but it was actually relatively recent so to speak i mean they had newspapers for like almost 200 years before they could actually put real pictures in them um prior to that they could put woodblock paintings and such in them and, and yeah. uh, stamps but they couldn't put actual pictures for a very long time yeah so at this at this point there weren't a lot of different kinds of media so people basically were reading novels radio wasn't popular until like the 1920s mm. movies started around this time actually people were getting the very first films yeah. but they were not the popular films we know of today they were almost more experimental at this point yeah, they, uh, they would they eventually were... hmm? films too like people don't realize the earliest movies are only like 10 minutes long Oh, if that the yeah. first the first full length film, which is ninety minutes, wouldn't come until I believe it's nineteen fifteen or nineteen sixteen. With ah, do you know do you know what movie that is? The first feature length. The first feature length film. Yep, in about I believe it's nineteen sixteen. Oh, uh, Birth of a Nation. It is Birth of a Nation, of oh. course, the great KKK uh, recruiting film, and oddly relevant in our times. Hmm fantastic so film was used for evil right from the beginning pretty much yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much all right so birth of a nation so anyway so right up until the 20s and such comics were this you know popular but kind of novel form that mostly just existed as newspaper strips that's yeah. pretty much what they were they were just newspaper strips or what we would call the newspaper strips today mm -hmm. um there weren't a lot of major ones i mean the only major development was that they started uh, doing collections, as you said. Yeah. And also the Sunday papers started having these supplements that were longer and longer, mm -hmm. where they were filled with all these, like, all these, like, full-page comic book strips and such that yeah. uh, were continuing on stuff from the, from the weeklies, basically. It was basically a gimmick to sell Sunday papers because mm -hmm. they knew the kids loved them. And also they knew people wouldn't usually buy Sunday papers otherwise. It was just basically a gimmick. For selling yeah. an extra kind of bonus. Yeah. This would, of course, continue until uh, 1929 with uh, the funnies. Oh, there's a. I think there's a couple of steps in between. Okay, go. One thing that I would mention, I know we've talked about them before. Mm -hmm. um, when you're going from comic strip to comic book, mm -hmm. uh, you have to think of Windsor McKay. Okay. He did oh, a Little yeah. Nemo in Slumberland. Yes, yes, he did. And that starts like 1905. Those are, I think, the first time you see something that would look, you'd, you'd say was a comic book page. Mm. 
because he would he would do these big full page layouts and the layout of the page would affect the story yeah and that was kind of the first time people really started doing that yes and like yeah. I said, if hmm? sorry i was just gonna say the little nemo's even people today if you were to look at a little nemo comic you would recognize it as a comic book by today's yeah. standards or at least a comic strip anyway you would probably think it came out in the early 70s yeah you probably would actually I'm not sure why, but the way he did his inking and the, the trippy layouts and the trippy like font he used for his titles and stuff, it that it looks very 1970s. Yeah, yeah that's true, even though it's from right at the beginning of the 20th century. That's true. Yep. Yeah, because his first one was, uh, what was it, Tales of a Rarebit Fiend? You, that sounds familiar. That's like his first known work, but it was the little Nemo that if you want to talk comic books, mm-hmm. that's where you start seeing that comic book aesthetic. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then what you end up with, uh, what you were getting at, mm-hmm. the first comic book, technically, mm-hmm. was, uh, it was a, a small pamphlet. It was Funnies on Parade. Right. In 1933, which was done, it was a, it was like a, a promotion for, for Procter & Gamble. Yes. Yes, it was. Yeah, for their, for their soaps and toiletry products. Yeah. Yep, that's very true. It was actually the idea of a guy named Maxwell Gaines. Mm, yep. Um, also, uh, but he wasn't the only guy. There was also Harry L. Weidenberg and George Janosik. Um, mm. And they were a uh, Waterbury, Connecticut company. Yeah. Eastern Color Printing. And this was their idea as a, as an extra little thing for uh, sending stuff out as a promotion. Um, they yep. ended up printing 10,000 copies. And it was such a success that they produced similar periodicals for Canada Dry Soft Drinks, Kinney Shoes, <laughs> Whitney Cereal, and others, with print runs of 100,000 to 250,000. Yeah. Because they were popular. Yeah, and they were also that, it, they were reprints of comics from the paper. Yeah, yeah, they weren't new material at all. They were totally yeah. reprints, which I guess they kind of sort of had the license to use, probably. Yeah, they they would. It's It's one of those things, too, that people would sort of not be real fussy on because you're just people are just starting to realize the idea we can monetize this stuff yeah pretty much well again they're being given away for free yeah at this point it's just a little extra Mm -hmm. doesn't matter okay so um so eastern color did actually publish its own famous funnies in um july 1934 which is 68 page giant which sold for a whole 10 cents yep and this was a huge success Mm -hmm. okay um and uh the listeners absolutely loved it selling and it sold 90 percent of its 200,000 print Mm -hmm. and it's considered the first comic book proper pretty much yeah even though it's it's reprints yep pretty much and uh, it would eventually run 218 issues, even though really it's just reprints. Again, we're yeah. not looking at actual new material here. Yeah. Until? Until we get to, Don, you do the honors. Yep. 1935, you get mm-hmm. New Fun Comics. Right. Um, which was originally called New Fun, which was New Fun, the big comic magazine. Um, it was published by National Allied Publications. That name doesn't sound very familiar, Don. Is there another name we can call them? Yes, they also, uh, back in the 70s, became National Periodical Publications. Mm-hmm. And something else? 
And eventually they were bought by Warner. And turned into? DC Comics. Yeah, exactly. Dun, dun. Yeah, so that goes way back. And More Fun was the first appearance of new material for a comic book. Mm Mm-hmm. Exactly. It featured a uh, mix of humor features, including the funny animal comic, Pelion and Asa, the college (laughs) set Jigger and Ginger. These, mm-hmm. these sound like I'm talking. This at least sound like furry porn comics. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway um, the dramatic western strip, Jack Woods, hmm. Jack Woods, Jeff Woods. I sense a connection. Dun, and dun. the and the Yellow Peril Adventure, Barry O'Neill, which starred a Fu Manchu style villain named Fang Gao. Mm-hmm. And then in issue number six, okay. The, they, these two like kids from Canada, well, at least with Canadian connections, named Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, mm-hmm. um, began with the musketeer swashbuckler, a guy named Henry Duval. I think it's pronounced Henri Duval. Henri Duval. We'll go with that, French boy. <laughs> All right. And so we're doing two installments for turning it over to others under the pseudonyms Ledger and Roos. Hmm. They also created the supernatural crime fighter adventure, Dr. Occult. Wow, which I believe Dr. Occult is still running around in the DC universe today. Yeah, he they he kind of disappeared for a bit, but back in the 90s with the, the Vertigo line, they brought him back as like one of their main guys. He showed up in Crisis. Yeah, yeah, I remember Dr. Occult. He, he be- he's got this weird mandala symbol thingy he runs around with and sticks it in monsters' faces. Yeah, and he looks like a, at least at, at this time, he mm-hmm. looked like a generic like pulp hero. Yes, yeah, he would have. He gets a weird costume, like, years later, but at, for the most part, he's just, like, a square-jawed guy in a trench coat. I think he is still today, actually. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think they gave him a mask later on, but for the most part, I think he's mostly just a guy with a hat and a trench coat. Yeah, because in the Vertigo era, every character was a guy with a hat and a trench coat. Well, yes, they were. Yes, they were. So, <laughs> so yes, so Dr. Occult, which... Wouldn't that mean that Dr. Occult... Well, I guess he's not technically the first superhero. I mean, he does kind of have powers, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, he was created by Siegel and Schuster. But, uh, hmm, that's an interesting question. I, but I guess he's not considered the first superhero, not the proper one anyway. Because, he's not. Because again, he's not wearing a costume. Yeah, see, this is where I think the idea of uh, not being too fussy mm-hmm. about the, the, the hair splitting is important. Because I have seen a lot of... Uh, places that do say Dr. Occult is technically the first superhero. Um, I mm. think they give him correct credence because he becomes part of DC's superhero catalog like years later. Yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. Although, who would you consider the first superhero, Don? Well, this, this gets into, like, I would probably say that More Fun Comics is the beginning of the Golden Age. Right, okay, makes sense. Because I think this is the official beginning of the comic book. Um, it sets the template, because if you look, a lot of the stories that they're doing are borrowing from, like, the uh, the pulps mm-hmm. and the adventure stories from, like, a few years earlier. So right. So that's, that's where you get, like, the wild, like the, 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 the tough guy, like what we call the Indiana Jones type nowadays becomes popular. Right. Uh, the two-fisted detective becomes popular. Um, even early superheroes, the earliest predominant version would be like the Doctor Occult Man of Mystery, which is you know like the shadow kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. 
and that comes from the pulps. Um, the first superhero proper, I think, would be uh, 1938 Superman. Yep, yep, definitely. I agree with that. Well, he's he's also the first one to dress in a true costume. Yeah, and, and well, eh, some of the other guys did, but again, it would be, I change into my blue jacket with mask. Well, it's yeah. A little okay, yeah, that's true. Yeah, but he set, he set the template. He's got the cape. Mm-hmm. He's got the long johns. He's he's the, the 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 weird history kind of thing he's he's got stuff that would recognize his superpowers mm-hmm. but again because if you read early superhero comics they're not like like when i was a kid i'm you're talking um coming out of the 60s where like superman could like move the sun if he wanted mm-hmm. to kind of thing right the, er- the earliest characters because they're pulp heroes a lot of their powers are more like a gimmick right yeah that's true like even superman he was bulletproof he could jump over tall buildings and stuff like and mm. and this was kind of the extent of it yeah that's pretty much it well keep in mind a lot of this early stuff they were basically just it was a gimmick as you said they're still basically crime busting pulp heroes which is what were popular at that time yeah and yeah they have a gimmick but they're still ultimately doing the same thing all the other crime busting pulp heroes are yeah like even even the first superman stories he's basically like busting gangsters and stuff yeah exactly which Superman later on wouldn't even bother with. I mean, that's you mm-hmm. know that's someone else's job. That's not worth his time. He's got to save the planet. Yep. Um, actually, fun thing: Action Comics number one, which has Superman on the cover, he's actually the backup story. He's not yeah. even the actual main story in that. Yeah, because you you saw that too. Like, if you've read um, Action Comics number one, and these days on the internet you can, there was that idea, and this is why I say he's the first superhero because you could tell they were nervous about putting him in mm-hmm. because even though we'd consider him like you know a street level superhero nowadays right. at the time he was something weird and mystical and fantastic and there was this fear that the public couldn't handle something that over the top to the point that there are little scientific factoids in the first superman comic so right he's he's he lifts like a car and there's a little panel that that says the ant can lift a hundred times his own body weight and that's like real so superman isn't crazy right kids you know yeah that's true they're actually trying to explain it i've forgotten about that you're right and i think part of that too is because at this time coming Mm -hmm. out of the pulp era uh comic books weren't strictly kid stuff they might have been they might have been considered a little lowbrow they were considered Mm -hmm. like you know pop culture mass entertainment but they were still they they figured a significant portion of their readership would be would be older would be say like old like late teens even grown-ups and that was where i think that fear came from that they thought that you know a grown-up wouldn't believe oh he jumps over a building that's just crazy nobody can right. do that well they assumed that yeah they had a, they were a general audience thing yeah for the most and you, part you could get away with a doctoral cult because again coming from that pulp tradition and remember at this point xenophobia was still a thing that was that was quite popular and open and the idea was that while there is stuff like hypnotism and mysticism that because those guys over in that asia place they do all that right and that's a Mm -hmm. thing isn't it so and that's where i think you get that idea like i said superman being the first superhero because he was really pushing Mm -hmm. audience credulity at the time yeah yeah i could see that Mm-hmm. I can definitely see that. Um, although, as far as your like comment about that, well, let's see. Um, okay, so let's see. So Superman hits in thirty eight. We'll get to more more about that in a second. 
mm-hmm. and 39, um, National Comics Publication, the true DC Comics, because DC Comics is actually an amalgam of several different companies. Yeah. Um, but National is the true DC Comics in a sense, the, the one that has the direct line. Um, has Bill Finger and Bob Kane yeah. create this character called Batman, who appears in Detective Comics number 27. Um, they generally were doing it in response to the success of Superman. It's like, we need a superhero too. It's like, yeah. okay, we'll create this bad guy. Yet for some reason, they created a character with no superpowers. He just had the costume and a pair yeah. of guns. Yeah, and if you ever saw the original design for Batman, he's this like weird red and yellow thing with giant like wings. Yeah. They look like weird sideways uh like bat wings and stuff. Yep. That's true. Um and yeah, the comics at this point were actually doing really well. I mean this is the true golden age of comics. It's ironic that it still started with Superman and Batman and they still mm-hmm. continue today to be mostly relevant. Uh, but we'll get to that in a minute. But at this point, actually, comics were super popular. I mean, print runs very quickly got up into the, you know, at least half million, if not million run, million print runs. I mean, people, they were yeah. generally doing large print runs at this point, and they were selling them. They also, at this point, in the early 1940s, over 90% of girls and boys from 7 to 17 read comic books, according to, to, according to some statistics. Yeah, this, this is something I think... Um... To go back to our episode about the uh, Japanese comic book industry, mm-hmm. uh, anybody who's heard that, and if you haven't, go go listen right now. What the hell are you waiting for? But listen to both of them. If if you've listened to it, the idea that one of the reasons Japan had all these like weird, freaky comics and their industry was so resilient, and they had all these like strange, you take it strange genres and that was because you had this gigantic audience. Mm-hmm. And you see that in the golden age, they had that gigantic audience. Basically, everybody at some point during their day would read a comic book. Yep. Comic books were just popular culture at this point. Again, keep in mind, there is no TV at this point. Movies are a big thing. People go to the movies at least once a week. But again, you're generally going going once a week. Um, There's books, magazines. We're still looking at a mostly literate population that's reading. And comics are just a really popular form of... Uh, entertainment there is sorry there is also the radio plays that are going on at this point this is yeah. also during the uh great old time radio period the the radio play um golden age so to speak yeah as well which go hand in hand with superheroes because going back to this superman quickly becomes a radio play in fact it becomes the most popular radio play in america yeah running several days a week there will be installments of uh the Superman radio show, um, which is mostly him like beating up gangsters. Yeah. And um, that, cause there's literally no supervillains and the radio play would eventually create, uh, what is it? Jimmy Olsen, Perry mm-hmm. White, Kryptonite. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that actually are from the radio play that would work their way into the comics. The yeah. radio play in some ways was probably even more popular than the actual comic book and really contributed to Superman becoming popular as he was. Yep. There was also Batman radio plays as well, but they were never very popular and they didn't run, last that long from what I know. Yeah, the, the Superman one, the, the radio thing is, again, a lot of what we think of as Superman mm-hmm. came from the radio play, not the original comic. Yes, exactly. Because you know the story of Kryptonite, right? They needed something to actually slow him down. He was way too powerful. They had no way to stop him. So they're like, uh, Kryptonite. No, there's there's something something more specific. 
Oh, what was it? And this goes with what I said. The American comic industry a lot of times is affected by things outside of it. Mm -hmm. The actor who played Superman, as I recall, he got like injured or he got really sick. He got sick. I remember this yeah. story. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they needed they needed some way to get Superman out of the story for a little bit so he could recoup. So they came up with this idea. It's this like weird mineral from his home planet makes him sick. So the actor could just come in and he's on like at death's door and he just goes, uh, can't, uh, 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 and he could manage that. And you splice that in and then you have the rest of like the, the B-listers like Lois and Jimmy taking care of, of the thing for a couple of weeks while he's busy like moaning and groaning. Yeah, pretty much. Yep. So, Poor guy. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, I'd forgotten about that, and but then it became a staple later on because it became the only way to stop Superman once he got powerful enough. Yeah, and then as I recall too, mm-hmm. one of the the big things about the Superman radio play was wasn't that how the uh, the government busted the clan? Yes, it was. Um, the story to that goes that the <laughs> we already mentioned the clan twice this episode. <laughs> um, so, yes, the story of how Superman busted the clan, which I think I've mentioned in a previous episode, but just to mm-hmm. quickly go over it. So what happens is is this one guy uh, infiltrates the clan and um, he learns all the different clan codes because they had all this secret lingo and all these, and I mean lingo, secret language and codes and all this stuff mm-hmm. and all the secrets of the clan. And then he goes to the FBI and says, look, I've discovered all this stuff about the Klan. you got to put a stop to these guys. These guys are just bad. They're bad news. And the FBI goes, yeah, we're not that interested. Whatever. Mm-hmm. And he's like, but the Klan. And they're like, yeah, yeah, go away. Uh, I'm trying to remember the name of the dude, but you can look it up, actually. This is a true event. Mm-hmm. And so what he did is he instead said, okay, where, how can I get this information out there? So he contacted the creators of the Superman radio play which of course most popular one in America or one of them anyway, and said, We've got I've got this information. Do you think you can use it? And they thought about it and they said, Hell yeah, we can use it. <laughs> and um, so Superman did this long running story called was it uh, Brothers of the Fiery Cross or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. And so and what happens is in the end it's kind of about a character who gets involved with the clan. And they use all the real clan codes. They're using all the real clan information in the actual show. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, when clan members heard it and people heard it, they're like, and this is true, they thought, wow, you, we sound like a bunch of idiots. <laughs> we're, 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 this sounds so stupid. And so a lot of people actually quit. Like the clan recruiting just like plummeted after mm-hmm. the Superman radio show made them look like a bunch of idiots. Mm-hmm. And so it's largely credited with helping to put a real capper on the clan, which was already starting to get in a decline at this point, but was a little bit troublesome, but it kind of like knocked the, knocked the wind out of them for a long time. Yeah, that guy was Stetson Kennedy. Yeah, there he is. Stetson Kennedy. Yep. Thanks for looking that up. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, and that's so that's the story of how Superman in real life defeated the Ku Klux Klan. Well, almost. <laughs> They're kind of sort of still around, at least I've heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so the Superman radio show, and of course there were other superheroes on the radio at this point. The Shadow yeah. was super popular. Yeah, um, there was the Green Hornet, I believe, also had a radio show. There mm-hmm. were a whole bunch of them. Like superheroes quickly became a big thing in radio, pulp, and comic books. Like yeah. after their comic book debut, it didn't take long before superheroes were everywhere. Yep. 
And then there was kind of one thing that really skyrocketed superheroes in popularity in comics. Which was? World War II. Ah, you mean the um, American GIs taking comics all over the world? Yeah, but I mean, even before then, Mm -hmm. when the war broke out, it's like the superheroes enlisted right away. Right. And that's kind of what made superheroes, like, they just took off at that point. Like, everybody... Everybody had superheroes by then, but that was was what kind of cemented them as as I guess a major major like genre for the medium. Yep, and that's where we get like Captain America and um, all the other like Nazi busting superheroes of that period. Yep, and then that's also where you kind of really started to see uh, supervillains. Mm-hmm. Though usually they were Nazi supervillains at that point. Yeah, now or Japanese. Or Japanese, yeah. There were some Japanese ones too. But because, of course, Americans wouldn't do that kind of stuff. But we're starting to really <laughs> see supervillains at that point. Yeah, you're right. Well, the irony with that, though, is in the comics, they totally would. So, like, the evil, like, Nazi super scientists would build, like, a chemical that would turn our troopers into these, like, hulking brute fighting machines. Whereas, you know, Captain America is essentially the same story, but blonde. So. <laughs> yeah, he's good looking. He doesn't count. Yeah. But that's. Um, but that's what cat and and it was also that idea like during times of war, you tend to like demonify the other side. Yep, of course you do. And I think what happens there, like one of the things that made superheroes popular was the super villain, and mm-hmm. you could have villains without, I guess, questioning audience credulity because you already had people with heads full of these like horrible things the other side did, and a lot of times you'd present them as caricatures. So thinking, no, all Japanese guys are evil wizards, right? Like that, they can summon demons, right? Like that doesn't... Well, seem... that's what we have to defeat them, dude. That's right. And it's not as unreasonable an idea. And then that, what people don't realize, that's what kind of created the superhero as we know them nowadays. Pretty much. Because yep. then you could just add all the crazy shit you wanted to it. And they did. And boy, did they ever... Now, we should actually, at this point, going back to your point about there being comics of all kinds, uh-huh. um, take a little detour, because we were kind of jumping ahead when we went to World War II. There's one thing that should be brought up. Uh, MLJ, a publisher of the period, was producing a thing called Pep Comics as well. Ah. They were more of a general audience comic, uh, yeah. mostly targeted towards you know teens and ki- mostly teens, teen humor and such. Mm-hmm. Um they did have some superhero, sci-fi, and other stuff as well, adventure. Yeah. But a big part of it was uh, teen stuff, especially this one that came out in 1942 by the name of Archie. Yep. And you know what's funny? What? <laughs> do, do you remember the tagline for early Archie comics? No. What was the tagline? The Mirth of the Nation. Uh. <laughs> oh, so we've done it wah, again. Wah. <laughs> Welcome to our clan episode, I guess. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, the mirth of the nation. Okay. Yep. Now, the funny thing with that mm-hmm. is the same guys who did Archie, as I recall, like like just before, mm-hmm. had done one called Wilbur. I believe they did. Which was, the, which was basically Archie. So Archie is technically an Archie ripoff. <laughs> um, did they? Are you sure? Um, not for MLJ anyway. No, it was somebody else. Not for else. Pep Comics. Okay, it was for someone else. Okay. Okay, so I'll assume that you're right. Mm-hmm. Um, not for Pep Comics anyway, because Pep Comics didn't publish it. And there, were, there was nothing in Pep that was called uh, Wilbur. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, uh, let's take a look. Had they done it? First Wilbur Comics was 1944. Right. And Archie, as I just said, was 42. So that can't be right. Actually made his first appearance in Zip Comics number 18, three months before Archie's first appearance. And it was by the same creators? Uh, same company. It wasn't the same, same company. creators. Ah, okay. Let me know by MLJ. Okay. Now, the irony to that, too, is the original Archie mm-hmm. wasn't what we think of as Archie. Okay. Like I've read of those early ones. How is it different? The very original, like, Archie is more like, like a, a Bowery Boys kind of thing. Oh, right. Okay. Like, he's younger. Um, mm-hmm. It starts with uh, Betty just moving onto the street, and he's trying to impress her. Mm-hmm. And there, it's, it's, you can't say it's too different, because, again, it's, it's that, like, youthful hijinks kind of, kind of Andy Rooney sort of story. Mm-hmm. But Wilbur was closer to what we'd come to think of as Archie. Right. Right out right out of the gate. Whereas the original Archie, it took a little bit. And then Archie does this weird thing a few mm-hmm. years later once they introduce like Vernaka and Reggie. That it seems to almost take a jump just mm-hmm. shy of like like a college era hijinks kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. It's odd that way. Yeah. They almost seem more like college kids at that point. Yeah. And and like especially if you know the time, the fashion and the mm-hmm. trends and the things they're into that they're it's sort of you got the, that weird back and forth until uh basically dan DiCarlo comes in and kind of solidifies what we now know like back in i think that was like in the mm-hmm. 60s right yeah would have been that he kind of and then that's what archie was forever and ever and ever because that's of course when their pact with the devil came to fruition well, yes, eventually you've got to pay for it. I mean, wait, the devil, what are you saying, dude? They published, like, in the 70s and 80s, a ton of, like, Archie Christian comics. Archie yeah, but, is totally a Christian boy. Yeah, but that was different. That was Spire. Oh, so that and, was actually another company just borrowing the Archie characters and rights? Yeah, because that was uh, uh, Al Hartley, mm-hmm. who was a, a diehard Christian dude, who said, why can't we use these characters and use it to get the message out? And Spire Comics was a whole, it was a different branch that just used, like, the Archie characters. Oh, I wonder, always wondered about that. I yeah, just that, thought Archie went through a Christian phase. Oh, no, that was, that was, again, that was something separate. It was, it was part of the, the whole Archie conglomerate, but it was set technically a different arm. Ah, interesting, interesting. Yeah, because the Archie th- idea comes back later on because holy crap you can't imagine how many archie ripoffs there were well that's because again comics were general audience at this point yeah and they would be for quite some time uh, at least until the early 50s and so as an end result there was a huge like male and female audience running for comic books at this point because it just wasn't all superheroes it was everything yeah there's there's genres that disappeared too that I find amazing. I bet there are. But, well, I mean, westerns, horror, science fiction, humor, romance. I mean, every genre you could think of, plus more, was done as a comic book during this period. Yep. And again, that's why a lot of people call it the golden age because yeah. there was just so much and sales were up. And no matter what you were into, you could find something that was part of it. Right. And this continued, I mean, even in the early 1950s, um, 
Dell Comics came out and they were actually one that we don't hear about today, but Dell was actually one of the biggest publishers. In fact, they yep. accounted for a third of all North American sales in the early 50s. Okay, But, but they you know had, why? Well, well, hold on a sec. They had 90 titles and averaged a circulation of 800,000 copies each issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is in the early 1950s, folks. 800,000 yep. copies. The main one, however, were Walt Disney's comics yep. and stories. There we yep. go. They were publishing the Disney line, okay? Which they peaked a circulation of 3 million in 1953. Yep. Yep. Um, 11 of the 20, top 25 best-selling comic books of all time are Dell titles. Yeah. Now, there's there, there's a catch, kind of. Right. Okay. Because you, you, you sort of jumped a little bit ahead. Well, we do that. Okay. Yes, yes, we do. Go back if you want. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Just got to go back. Because again, once World War II ended, mm-hmm. the bottom fell out of superheroing. Yes, that's true. Nobody cared anymore. Because again, they were, yeah, they were so tied to the war effort. Out of that mm-hmm. comes what you're getting into. was uh, Right after World War II, there was a lot of experimenting, a lot of people looking for the next big thing. Dell is kind of part of that because they got the Disney license. Yep. By the way, at this point in 1954, at least by 1954, there were 40 publishers that were active yeah. in America. At least. It's it's hard to keep track because so many of them would come and go and so many of them would be a branch of someone else or a branch mm-hmm. of something else. But basically the major players at this point were Dell, obviously, as I just mm-hmm. said, uh, which were publishing the 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 disney comics yeah um atlas which would eventually morph into what we know as marvel comics yeah um dc and archie yeah in fact archie had become so popular that they changed the name from mlj publications to archie comics it literally yep. the company the company just said screw it we're just going to publish archie we're just archie we're the archie company yeah so there were a couple more that come up uh, later on because i think Fawcett was a big one uh, Fawcett actually had ceased publishing by this point. By the, by fifty four, Fawcett was already gone. Okay, but so it was Fiction House. Them. Yeah. Okay. And then I think Fox was another big one at this time too. Yeah, there were there were like I said, there were forty publishers. Yes, yeah, well, over least. forty publishers. There, were, uh, yeah, there were over forty publishers. Because don't forget too that what you started seeing in like the the forties was a lot of um, like fly by night places. Yep. That would start up and print like. One or two issues and then like fold. Yep. And this Actually, is. Hmm? Hmm? Yep. Yep. Continue. Sorry. I'm, I'm interrupting. Oh, okay. This was also the time too that there was a, uh, like if you were like a comic writer or artist, you were probably getting like reamed really, really bad by whoever you were working for. Yeah. You were basically just, they were all sweatshops basically. Yeah. yeah it was, it was pretty bad. Uh, I also found another statistic. So um, circulation of comics peaked out in 1952 when mm-hmm. 3,161 issues of various comics were published that year with a total circulation at about 1 billion. Yep. Okay. And they would, after 1952, they would start dropping for the rest of the decade. Yep. Okay. With the biggest loss coming in 55, 56. And there's a reason for that, folks. We're getting to it. Yep. Because what happens during that time is you get more experimenting. Mm-hmm. And this is where a lot of like genres that are dead now come come from like it amazed me when i finally had access like thanks to the internet and that to books from that era holy crap were there a lot of like jungle adventurers Mm -hmm. like there were there were a lot and we don't have that anymore there were there were a fair number like sports comics that we don't have anymore 
Oh yeah, they every genre, well, crime, sports, everything that we mm-hmm. did back then were they did in comic form. What mm-hmm. and going back to one of my other notes, I should also say that um, television started to become standard in 1948. So yeah. what we're watching in the early 50s is the circulation of comics peaked probably in 52 because that's when the true rise of television starts. Yeah. So TV is one of the things that's cutting into the uh, comic book world at this point. So it's not just what's coming in other yeah. forms. It's not just the government and other things that are coming. It's also TV that's starting to really hack into the comic books. Well, we're going to get it because the government isn't actually the, the, the problem. People don't realize that. Um, Dude, the government is always the problem. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Channeling my inner Republican. All right. So. Okay. Hi, Jeff. So- how you doing? So during this time, yep. the big thing that happens is... The big before, thing that happens before 54. is... Before 54. Yeah, kind of just before. Oh, EC Comics. It. There it is. Yep. EC, EC Comics comes out, uh, mostly being published by William Gaines, yep. um, who is the son of uh, the founder of Famous Funnies, Maxwell Gaines. Yep. Basically. So the comic book tradition is continuing on. Because EC Comics originally stood for Educational Comics. Which makes perfect sense. They were definitely educational. <laughs> well, once once Will Gaines took over, he did stuff that people actually wanted to read. Horror, crime. Yeah, violence, science violence, fiction. Violence, science fiction. Yeah, yeah. EC Comics were awesome. Even today, like you read them today, a lot of them still hold up. Oh, yeah, I believe it. He was doing some of the most amazing stuff of its time. In fact, I'm sure by this point, all the other publishers must have been, like, shocked and scared by just how successful he, what, he uh, those EC comics were. They were. Um, one of the other things, too, that, that EC did was uh, they were consistently consistently high quality. Mm-hmm. Like, if anybody's ever, like, read um, a Golden Age comic book, mm-hmm. they come in two categories. They're either brilliant pieces of artistic mastery or, oh my God, did you draw this with your feet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like there's, there's nothing in between. They're either brilliant or terrible. But yep. EC was big on, uh, they were big on quality. They, mm-hmm. they, they recognized that that was something their audience wanted. Right. Um, so they had stories that were actually written that mm-hmm. weren't word salad. Um, they had artists, a lot of their artists would later on, go on to other things like wally wood started at ec comics right no, that makes sense i don't know if he, well i don't know if he started but that was kind of where he he took off and he ended up becoming one of like their art directors mm-hmm. and yeah ec comics just took off huge yep in some ways too i would say that um the beginning of ec comics to tie in with like our horror host episode mm-hmm. i think was part of uh part of the establishment of the monster kids era like well we've been our parents yes you're right although the actual monster craze wouldn't actually come for a little bit i mean the monsters themselves are what they're from the early 60s they're not from the 50s at this point i mean and but 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 this would actually have been the time when you start getting the shock theater packages not too long after this Uh, i have to check on when the shock theater started hold on give me a sec but even and even then, too, like, this is the beginning of, uh, this is the era of the independent theater. Right. So you're getting a lot of, like, uh, B-horror movies and such. Right, right, right. Shock Theater starts in 57. Okay, so that's coming up. 
So that's coming up. That'll actually come up. Unfortunately, that'll be post EC Comics, or at least the EC Comics we, we're talking about right now, anyway. It so, is. It is. But so, I would. Oh, I would still argue that this is the. Uh, this is part of that. That it shows that that zeitgeist is there. Right. Yeah. But keep in mind, actually, that there was still horror stuff running at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly enough, uh, let's see, Vampira, the original horror host, actually starts in '54. Yep. Shock Theater doesn't actually pop up until a little later. Yeah, and that's, I think, and we talked about that too, which is why it's weird that you get Vampira. And then there's this, like, huge stretch of time before anybody thinks, why don't we do something like that? Well, there's something weird. Don't some of the EC comics, especially the horror comics, don't they have horror hosts? Yep. And so that's... wait, horror hosts technically appear in the comics first then before they appear on TV. Uh, in theory, yeah. That's weird. Okay. It kind of is, because again, that was where, uh, when you get Vampira, she's, I think, comes out of that tradition. Right, yeah, well, we talked about that with uh, Michael Monaghan, yep. how the horror host tradition does actually have a tradition, oh, what was it? The spook shows. Spook shows, yes, there we yeah. go. Yeah, it's a spook show tradition, yes. And I'm I'm willing to bet that EC Comics decided to do that because of that older tradition. I thought, that's an idea, why don't we kind of bring that Makes back sense. and... And okay, and, that, and that they did make sense. Mm, and but, they did. And this is where I say you can see that conflagration of ideas starting to happen. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. So yeah. So that's so that's all that's coming together. Yeah. Um. So and all that's coming together. And comics are going great guns. I mean, yep. they got that TV thing. It's a little bit of an iffy, iffy, but EC Comics is on the rise, <laughs> uh-huh. and comics are becoming popular among all kids. And it's going to be smooth sailing from here on in. Right, Don? No, because. You get to what I consider to be the end of the golden age, mm-hmm. which is 1954. Yep. Publication of Seduction of the Innocent. Yep. Which leads to the Senate subcommittee hearings on juvenile delinquency. Boo! Hiss! Boo! <laughs> Idiots. Idiots! They literally are about to kneecap our entire comic industry. Actually, and this is where I think... Well, not exactly, because what ends up happening, mm-hmm. it was uh, Dr. Fred Wortham. Yes, it was. Who is like a psychiatrist who writes, Seduction of the Innocent was a study about how like comics in particular were corrupting mm-hmm. the kids of today. Yes. And it's not the first treaty that he wrote on such things about pop culture corrupting society and that. Mm-hmm. It's his most well-known. If you get the chance to read it, I do recommend it. Okay. Because it's got some really strange things. Okay. And I th- I think a lot of it ties into, like we've mentioned before, the idea that age-appropriate works in different directions. Mm-hmm. So if you're like a kid reading something for grown-ups, it might shock you but, and you're not going to get it. Mm-hmm. But if you're a grown-up reading something for kids, you're going right. to read into it stuff that's just not there. Right, and yeah. and if if you're a teenager, you just don't understand anything, mm-hmm. basically. Well, yeah. And that was kind of there's a lot of that sort of thing with him that he's reading stuff in that may or may not be there. Apparently, a whole lot of S and M and uh, homosexual stuff. Yeah. Now, now to be fair to him, mm-hmm. some of like the homoeroticism he's reading into the superhero stuff. Some of it's funny because it, it's it's like he talks about the, the typical Batman and Robin pose with mm-hmm. their hands on their hips, how they're jutting their crotches forward. Into, and you're like, 
okay, dude, just relax, man. Just just relax. It's okay. You know, I think it, I think I think Wortham should have just you know been been honest and come out of the closet. That's what I think. Well, I'm not going to go that far, but it does sort of lean that way. But then he'd get other stuff where he'd say, "Well, you sort of have a point because when you talk about like S and M, that was inherent to the original Wonder Woman stories." Yes, yeah, the uh, Wonder Woman stories. Uh, the Wonder Woman's original outfit is a dominatrix outfit. Wonder well, Woman's in magic lasso. Forty cents hmm? in nineteen forty cents. In nineteen forty, it was the nineteen forties version of a dominatrix outfit, kind of mm-hmm. colored up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the her magic lasso. Think about that. Wonder Woman is an S and M dominatrix. Well, and and she literally is. And to that, there's references to that. I can remember like a reference to how like a a little bit of spanking is good for a girl, and that, and it's like, wow, that's you. That yep. Did yeah, put, exactly. They should put that in like the new movie, and you know, I I think so because and if do... you read those early Wonder Woman comics, every every issue is about her tying up mostly other women. Yeah, and, um, and and doing things to them, interesting things. Kinda, and and like I say, so so Wortham wasn't exactly a hundred percent out to lunch, but I think again, he kind of lost sight of the big picture because his theory was that well, kids read this and it makes kids bad, but the thing was everybody read them. And also, I'm not sure how honestly, I'm not sure how popular Wonder Woman was back then. Like as a its own book. Well, I'm I think just, it probably had some, but I don't. But I, yeah, there were others. I know. Yeah, because because there's a lot of like when you read like the a lot of the horror comics and that there is a lot of strange subtext to some of these stories, eh? Yeah, well, they're trying to be disturbing, and they succeeded. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think, like for for like Wortham's big argument. His research was shoddy because, like, basically what he'd do is he said, comic books make you into a delinquent. Mm-hmm. So he'd interview a bunch of delinquents and say, you read comic books? they say, yeah, sure we do. But everybody did. So, of course, they said, you know, you could ask them, do you wear pants? Oh, no, pants lead to delinquency. Yep, and that's, exactly. And that's where I think he kind of, like, overstretches. But like I say, there, there, there is some questionable stuff, but it was also because it wasn't all being written for kids. Mm-hmm. True. Now, well, general audience material is going to be like that. I mean, mm-hmm. the early Japanese stuff has some incredibly questionable stuff. And hell, even some of the later Japanese stuff has some incredibly <laughs> questionable stuff. With, I was recently reading uh, the original Dragon Ball. Uh-huh. Uh, I was mentioned to you before we started recording. Dude, have you read the original Dragon Ball? Some of it. There's some really questionable stuff in the original Dragon Ball. I was like, hmm. oh, I should give copies of Dragon Ball to my nieces and nephews. And I read it and thought, yeah, I'll wait till they're older. <laughs> yeah, because again, that was like more of like like a teenager thing. Yeah, it's definitely targeted more towards teens than it is for... I mean, also it's Japanese sensibilities. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely Japanese sensibilities on that book. Anyway... Mm. It's, it's so amazing, but it's so like, whoa, dude. Um, well, and that's okay. what it is, because again, it's it's knowing who's supposed to be reading it. Yeah, exactly. And this yeah. this this I'm gonna I, I I bring this up not because I'm I'm trying to defend uh, Doctor Wortham or anything, because I'm mm-hmm. I'm not. Uh huh. Wortham lover. Uh, yeah, us old school cyberpunks laugh at people like that. Ha 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 ha. But. It's the idea that that notion of not exactly knowing who the audience is comes up a lot again mm, and again. Definitely. So, but he comes out, he, he, he makes this fuss. People are like outraged. People mm-hmm. are like, oh no, what do we do? The U.S. government holds, has a hearing yep, on Duke Comics. Yep. 
it's kind of a strange comedy of errors because Will Gaines being like the the owner of EC and mm-hmm. EC being one of the big companies, he's one of the big speakers, mm-hmm. and he completely botches it. Right, but he botches it. The 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 dominant theory is that he was on weight loss drugs at the time, mm-hmm. and weight loss drugs at the time were speed. Yeah, basically. So he was means he was jacked up, and during one part of the hearing, he's coming down. The drugs are wearing off, and it was the infamous part where they have this like guy with an axe holding up the severed head of a woman and he's trying to explain no our cover is in good taste the cover in bad taste would have him holding the head up so you could see the stump and like blood and stuff dripping out of it which is exactly what the cover was right and again that's the idea is because he was stoned because he was on these like stupid weight loss pills yeah yep yep exactly poor guy but even then the u.s government said that no that it, this doesn't cause juvenile delinquency. Right. But. But. What ends up happening afterwards is you get the comics code. Yep. And Which is? The comics code was a list of these really bizarre rules that you couldn't follow. Like you couldn't mm-hmm. do any of this in your book. And anybody who remembers like old school comic books, you'll see like a little white stamp approved by the comics code authority. Mm-hmm. The code was internal. It was um, a bunch of the companies got together and and what they said was because of this hearing, because of this book, we're scared that this is going to happen again, that they're going to keep bringing the hammer down. So we got to kind of rein things in to keep Mm -hmm. the public like off our back. Yep. That's what they said. Yeah. A lot of people think they specifically were out to, to take down EC comics. Well, when you look at the Comics Code, you know, rules, they're literally, here's everything that makes EC popular. Okay, let's just, we'll just ban all of that. Yeah, everything and, that's allowing EC to actually beat us in the sales, we'll ban that. And they're literally that, because it's rules like, you can't use the word crime, terror, horror in the cover of a book. Well, like, Vault of Horror and True Crime Stories were like top sellers for EC. Yep. And and, it was literally them kneecapping EC comics. Yep. You couldn't portray the undead. You couldn't portray vampires. You couldn't yep. portray mon- like, and 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 that's and that's the theory. Now the interesting part was Dell didn't mm-hmm. take part in it. Dell said, "Piss off, we're not gonna join right. in." But Dell at the beginning of every of their books had it was a ah oh, shoot I forget what they called it, but it was like a our commitment to parents, right? And where they promised that they wouldn't show anything too terrible and vile, and you can trust us, right? Um, well, again, they were doing the Disney stuff, so that's yep. that's perfectly reasonable. Unfortunately, this had the horrible side effect, the comics code, of basically taking what was a general audience medium and shoving it into shoving it down into a kids medium at this yep. point. Because inadvertently, what these numbnuts had done is they basically said you can't produce anything that's not what we would call G-rated today. Mm-hmm. In fact, actually, kids rated, not even G-rated. So yeah. this is the point where comics literally become just when they're in this critical point where they're fighting with TV for an audience and they really have to choose where they're going to come into their own. These greedy, stupid idiots kneecap the whole industry and throw it down into a pit where it's going to take decades to dig itself out from. And even today, you could argue it's still not completely out of it. Yeah. And this, this is... Oh, but it was great for superheroes, though. Well, kind of. Um, 
this is where I would say what begins now is the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I say Generally that most people agree. Yeah. And I say, cause what happens, what you've got at this point now is the big thing that runs through the silver age that you're either accepting or fighting is the idea that comic books are a kid's medium, mm-hmm. which I've mentioned before always drove me nuts because at the same time that comic books had to be all sterile, the mm-hmm. newspaper strips could do whatever they wanted. Yeah, I know within reason, but I mean the old school Dick Tracy stuff that gets pretty, uh, pretty gruesome and horrifying yep well because again general audience material as opposed to you know comic books which are now truly just kids stuff yep now what i'd offer up is one of our as i mentioned at the beginning there's going to be a lot of stuff we don't really get into mm-hmm. um, because this is the point where i think you have a mainstream american comic book industry mm-hmm. because that idea of the comics code authority and everybody working under it sets the same constraints that even though Dell didn't follow, they weren't straying too far from. Right. Um, one of the weird things is uh, EC Comics mm-hmm. produces what ends up to be their most long-lasting feature at this time. Mad Magazine. That's right. And they do it because Mad is a magazine, not a comic book. Yep. And also, it is comedy, though. It's not... Uh anything else they're partly getting away with it because it's humor they are but they're using a lot of the same guys and they're using a lot of the same that's style true. and that that's true but that but this because this is something that's going to come back again another one of those weird little things going to come back in about 10 years correct about 15 years that idea that mad was a magazine not a comic book so it wasn't subject to the same restrictions very true but at any rate everybody else was <laughs> everybody else was and so the Silver Age is generally considered to start in October 1956 with Showcase number four from DC Comics, mm-hmm. which of course stars who? Batman. The Flash. Oh, it's the Flash. Say at least the modern Flash is. Yeah. It's now this is interesting because this is the first time you're going to see the characters being rebooted. Because sometimes people forget this that the 30s and 40s and 50s, early 50s superheroes were a whole bunch of different guys. They were a bunch of different characters. Mm-hmm. And they looked different. They had different costumes. But they decided, you know, in the late fif- mid to late 50s, to bring them into the modern age. So they rebooted all their characters. Yeah. Um, well, DC did. DC did anyway. Marvel would do something. Well, no, Marvel rebooted a couple characters too. Yeah, but Marvel uh, isn't here yet. Marvel's not, well, not for long. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so <laughs> DC started doing that in the first of their new new heroes as old was the flash mm-hmm. and he would become a symbol of the era although not was was not super successful at first in fact he stayed with showcase for a while until he eventually got his own book a couple of years later yeah um and so at this point we're starting to get a new superhero bandwagon would eventually start to appear so to yeah. speak um and in 1961 we would get uh Fantastic Four by Marvel Comics yep. by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Fantastic Four number one, of course. Which, mm-hmm. you know the story behind Fantastic Four number one, right? About how uh, Lee was going to quit? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, Lee was going to quit. And if I remember right, his wife, who unfortunately passed away earlier this year, was the one who convinced him to actually take one last stab at comic books. Yeah, as, as I recall, she said, if you're quitting anyway, just go for broke. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yep. Yeah. And uh yeah, so 
and there, that's how it went. Um, we owe, the comic industry owes that woman a lot. Uh, she 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 deserve she uh, she made a huge <laughs> contribution actually. If it wasn't for her, Kirby might have still done it. But Lee, you know, who knows what would have happened with Lee? But anyway, so as an end result, Fantastic Four come Fantastic Four number one comes out. It does well, and they were trying a new kind of superhero because more at this point the DC superheroes had already been rebooted for a little bit. Yeah, and they were you know larger than life, gooder than good characters. And so the Marvel guys decided, well, let's do something a little more realistic. Yeah. And a little more, um, you know, hipper, I guess you could say. Because, of course, this is the <laughs> early 60s at this point. So this is the era of uh, the hippies and the beatniks. Mm-hmm. Okay. So at this point, uh, they want something that also went for college kids. Yeah. Well, um, because they were kind of going for a little, so the older generation as well. Yeah. There's a catch with that, too, though. Mm hmm. Uh, if I can take it back a sure, little go bit, ahead. Uh, when you get when you get into the Silver Age, when yep. you get into the Silver Age, there's um, a lot of the companies go under. Mm-hmm. There's still a few. They're trying new things. Uh, the company that would become DC had a bunch of their old heroes. Uh, they still had Superman, Batman sold. I believe Wonder Woman still sold. Mm-hmm. Most of the other ones, nobody cared. Um, Captain America was still around, but it was this weird pseudo comedy version of it. Right. Um, the rest of the superheroes, their companies were doing different things. What you started seeing in this era, uh, mm-hmm. you saw science fiction comics took off. Yes. Yes, they did. Yeah. Because mostly nobody could, uh, nobody could complain. No, it's not a, a zombie. It's an alien. Oh, okay. Exactly. It was a way around all the comics code rules was to make them science fiction based. Yep. Yeah. Plus, this was the Atomic Age, so people were looking to the future. It's the same thing we were talking about with the Japanese stuff with Astro Boy. Mm, exactly. Well, How- this is, yeah, this is the Atomic Age. There's a sci-fi boom going on at this point. Yep. There's a major sci-fi boom going on. Because w- when you look at the uh, Silver Age versions of the uh, the DC characters, mm-hmm. a lot of them were going at sci-fi angle. Right, that's true. That they weren't, in, in the old days, they had like mystic powers, or they found this ancient talisman. Mm-hmm. But now they were looking at, at giving them the, the science fiction kind of origins. Um, well, hold what, on a sec. Actually, that actually fits in because oddly enough, though, do you remember what the origin of the original Flash was? Like the the Golden Age Flash? Oh, uh, wasn't it? A, it was like a lightning bolt or something? No, actually. The original Golden Age Flash um, was a chemist who uh, created a formula which uh, based around heavy water. Oh. And he absorbed the heavy water, uh, sorry, breathed in all these weird heavy water chemical fumes, and that's what gave him his powers. Okay. So he was always a creation of science. Mm-hmm. And then, ironically enough, when they rebooted him, he's the Barry Allen Flash that we know is the one who actually gets his powers from a cross between chemicals and a lightning bolt. Yeah, okay. But the Flash has almost always been a character, one of the few superheroes who was a character of science. Okay. Right from the beginning. So it's ironic that he would be the the uh, herald of the of the Silver Age, the Age of Science and the Atomic Age in comic books. Okay. That works. Hmm. Sorry. No, but that, that does definitely, uh, definitely show a direction. One of the other things I found weird mm-hmm. when you get to the 50s, yep. there was an uptick in war books. Well, you had a lot of people at this point who, a lot of the writers had were World War II veterans, right? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And so I think a lot of them were, maybe it was nostalgia. Maybe they were just drawing on their experience. I'm not sure. But we, if you recall right, this is also the era where uh, there was that TV show, Combat, yeah. which was about World War II fighting guys, and um, which was very popular, I believe. Mm-hmm. And um, so I can totally see that where, yeah, it's, they're all veterans writing these comic books, not all of them, but many of them. Mm-hmm. And so you're going to get a lot of that World War II stuff coming in, I, I suspect. There was, but a lot of them had this weird twist. Because, again, at this point, a lot of them end up being uh, set in Korea. Oh, Cause, okay. Because the Korean War starts up. But they're these weird comedic versions. Okay. Like, people don't realize... I didn't realize this. Everybody knows G.I. Joe from the 80s. Yes, of course. In the, the 60s, going into the 70s... Like, G.I. Joe came out in the 60s, the original right. toys. Mm-hmm. DC did a comic book during the 60s that was kind of a generic, like, action war hero story. Right. But there was a G.I. Joe in the 50s. Okay. And it's this weird mix between, like, the horrors of war and Gomer Pyle, USMC. Like, it's... it's okay. It's, it's so strange. And there were a few of them from that mm-hmm. era... That are these strange, like, picture the wacky comedy where the, the, the main character's arguing, because it's always a sergeant. He's always arguing with a sergeant. Right, of course. And hijinks ensue, and then they get lost, and they're trapped in the battlefield, and then the bad guys show up, and there's these scenes of them gruesomely dispatching them in realistic combat, and then the hijinks continue. It's like, wow, that's just, wow. Okay. But that was a thing. That was just a, another one of the weird little asides because that sort of kind of happens. Like I said, the superheroes, the bigger companies, the main thing, that's kind of at the side. Mm-hmm. But it's still this weird thing I've never been able to wrap my head around. Right. Hmm. Um, okay. Yeah, I can totally see that. <laughs> um, also, something else that pops up in the 60s is we get the first of the underground comics as well. Yeah, that's... That, Depending on how you look at it, either happens at the beginning or the end of the 60s. I assume the beginning you're referring to the Adventures of Jesus. Yeah. Frank, Frank Stack uh, yeah. in 62. Yeah. Or you're referring to Robert Crumb, uh, who starts his work in in Zap Comics in 1968. Yeah, because uh, you had, um, like like we were saying, that you had this mainstream, comic books have been kidified. Mm-hmm. Uh, superheroes were kind of a big thing, but they tended to be kidified. Uh, there was comedy books were popular at this time too. Uh, like the Archie clones were coming like almost unstoppably over the horizon. Many of which were done by Dan DiCarlo himself. <laughs> right? Oddly, he was a machine. He sure was. But and a lot of people weren't happy with that. So when you get to the fifties, again, you get into the monster mm-hmm. era. Right. I think you've got a lot of people who are older now that are disgruntled about EC getting neutered. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got the beatniks. You've got the beginning of the counterculture. You've got teen culture. Teen culture is historically marketed as rebellion. Right. Um, so you have the beginnings of, of what become the undergrounds. And that was where you got stuff like uh, Big Daddy Roth doing Rat Fink. Right. Yeah, things like you got the Adventures of Jesus, which again I highly recommend. If you get the okay, chance. you mentioned the the fifties era, so this is the sixties you're talking this, about. Here. Well, this is going into it, late fifties, okay. early sixties. Okay, yeah. But the undergrounds as we know them, really, like it was Crumb and, and and a bunch of those guys, like Zap Comics number one, right, is what a lot of people consider the beginning of the real underground comics. 
Right. Makes now, sense. They, now, they were happening before then. If you want to go back to the 30s, you had the Tijuana Bibles, which were technically the same thing. With but, more or less sex, depending on your point of view. Well, with yeah, but they, they, they had that attitude. Like, they were the original Cherry Pop-Tart. Right, yeah, yeah. Except rather than come up with something that was basically an Archie clone mm-hmm. as parody, they would just use the actual established characters and do these yeah. weird little porn comics with them. Yeah, they would just do Archie porn comics. Yep. Well, not Archie, because Archie wasn't around. They'd do like Ella Cinder, or I saw one with Wimpy from Popeye. It's like, oh no. Oh yeah, I've seen one with Wimpy and Olive Oil. I've mm. seen, there's a few of them kicking around online. Yeah, Popeye is in some. Um, Betty Boop. I believe yeah. there's some Tarawana Bibles with Betty Boop. Yeah, any popular um, character at the time was somebody yeah, did they, one. Yep, yep. So that, they're really crude. Like, really, really crude. Yeah, but then again... I in guess every so, sense of the word. Yeah, so were a lot of the early independents in that. That's true. And this is, again, it, it's it's that idea. It was sort of always there, but this is where it solidifies. Right, right, right. Yep, makes sense. And the undergrounds are a weird thing. Because mm-hmm. they don't last very long. Okay. By about 73, 74, it was done. But there are still underground comics today, but are, or are you referring to the classic undergrounds? Well, this is a catch. It's the same idea if you're into music about what is punk rock. Okay. Because real punk rock only lasted a couple of years, but it led right. to other stuff like later on. Right, right. Okay. Uh, because what happens with the undergrounds is, and we've mm-hmm. talked about this before, they kind of make make their way into the late 70s, into the independence. Right. Yeah, that's true. Like, the undergrounds were truly underground, and they were, like, designed to be offensive and subversive, and, mm-hmm. and like, Subvert Comics was an actual comic book that was being published back, as I recall, they published Trash Man, which is one of my all-time favorites. Right. Well, yes. And, and again, it was, it was, the, it was sort of a specific movement, mm-hmm. but it led to to things later on yeah yeah well it, like most underground comics just like the we talked about with the japanese stuff the gekiga mm-hmm. were almost the same thing where yeah. they they came in they were an under, they were an alternative comics movement that would later have huge influences on the mainstream comic movement even yep. though they only existed for a brief period of time yep and that's that's what that's what these did um Again, too, it, it was it was capitalizing on something because you find a lot of the underground guys loved Mad Magazine, right? Because Mad Magazine really did have that kind of uh, underground aesthetic. Yeah, yeah. Of like peeling back the veneer. Oh, it did. So, and and then that was that was was the ideal, except they wanted to get more in your face about it. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. And then, mm-hmm. oh, while that's going on, you also have like. The, the, the Silver Age kidified stuff. Well, kidified and teen. Remember, during the Silver Age, comics kind of grow, start to grow back up again. They do, but that was, and that was uh, I won't say it happened by accident, but they found out by accident. Well, they found out because they discovered that their readership was actually getting older. Yep. And uh, they realized that, oh, wait, we're not doing to teens anymore. It's mostly college kids reading these things. Yep. Well, and, okay, we should start writing to them. And that was what you said. That was what happened with Marvel. Yeah, pretty much. Was they came out, they did stories. I don't know if you'd say they were a little edgier. But they, that idea of the hero with problems, they wanted them more grounded. They wanted something more tangible. 
and they did surveys and they found out that yeah their their audience they thought it would be kids mm-hmm. but it was like late teens and college guys that were reading all the marvel comics and their characters in general were a little bit what I would describe as hipper. Like yeah. if you read the um, – an interesting one to read, if you ever get the chance, for those who haven't read them, is go find the collections of the early 1960s Avengers comics mm-hmm. and read them. Especially once you get past like Avengers like 10 or – issue 10 or 12. Because at this point you're in the – what's sometimes referred to as Cap's Cookie Quartet era. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when things start getting really interesting at that point. Because I try to remember who was writing it. I think it might have been Don Heck at that yeah. point. And slowly what you start to see is as Heck's style evolves and everything, it, start, it becomes very... Oh, how can I put this? There's a very odd style to the comics that I can't put my finger on. The, the nearest thing I can remember... The nearest thing I can compare it to, and this will sound really, really weird to anyone who hasn't actually read them and seen it, is um, there's a movie called Breakfast at Tiffany's, mm-hmm. which is a very famous movie from that era. And there's a, there's a hipness to that movie and a style to that movie that actually the early Avengers, especially once uh, Hawkeye joins and such, actually kind of reflect that. Hmm where they're very much products of their New York environment. In fact, they revel in the fact that they're, <laughs> these are New York stories and New York, and it's about the hip, the hip culture of New York. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, they're constantly making references to it and talk, and the Avengers are constantly talking to the, to the fellow citizens of New York, who of course are all these like, you know, young hip people and stuff like that. It's very fat. It's very interesting. It's a fascinating period to read from the Avengers. Mm-hmm. It really is. Yeah. Um, they'll, Captain America will like go hang out at a hippie bar and they'll do yep. like six or seven pages of him just talking current events with the hippies and that. Yeah. Yep. 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 They do stuff like that. Yeah. And starting to understand them and everything. Mm-hmm. But this also, of course, is also where the, the Black Panther comes from. Yeah. Uh, he's from this period. I'm pretty sure I created him. I'm not 100% sure on that one. But, oh, here, let me check. Mm-hmm. Um, did Don Heck create? I think Stan Lee created him. Was it Stan Lee that created the Black Panther? I think he did. Um, uh, let's see. Heck created uh, Bill Foster, became Black, Black Goliath mm-hmm. in 66. Um, you're right. Maybe the Black, maybe the Black Panther wasn't by Heck. Because I remember he first appears in... Uh, he first appears. Sorry, he first appears in the Avengers comics. Like he's an Avengers character, mm-hmm. because they're not sure what to do with him when he first appears. Right. Like they're not sure is this dude a villain? Is he a hero? What is he? Ah, Lee and Kirby. Actually, I'm and I'm completely wrong. The Black Panther was created in Fantastic Four number fifty-two by Lee and Kirby. Hmm. So it would have come probably during what the late part of Lee and Kirby's legendary Fantastic Four run, basically. Yeah. Because this would have been '66, and so, and then eventually he would pop up in the Avengers and even become a member of the Avengers. Yeah. But okay, hmm, I had always thought he was an Avengers character, but I guess that's why I associate him with. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so all right, so there we go. Um, so, but anyway, the Avengers of this period are fascinating from from the view of <laughs> New York culture that they actually give. Yeah. Because remember, these people lived in New York. New York was their place for the actors. Sorry. For the writers, the artists, the um, the characters, everyone lived in New York, and they were all New York creatures mm-hmm. and New York publishers. 
And so that's what you were getting a view of. You were getting this glamorized superhero view of New York. And I would actually say with Marvel Comics, that kind of continued right up until maybe the 90s or so. Yeah, it kind of comes and goes depending who's writing and how hip the actual writers are. Right, but you... Like, for example, even in the 80s, the Marvel Comics characters were hanging out with, like, the 80s David Letterman, for example, who was originally, yeah. of course, based in New York. I mean, they were so New York, it hurt. Like, a lot <laughs> of the Marvel Comics, right up until, yeah, probably up until about the, like, late 80s, maybe the Image Era, yeah. is when we start to see them. Because at that point, they've got a lot more people from outside New York who are writing the books. Yeah. And it's not just, you know, they're not New York culture and New York creators anymore. It's like people from all over the country are creating them. Yeah. And sorry, people all over the country are writing them. So, okay, but we've jumped ahead in time a little bit. So we should probably, okay, so the 60s happened, um, the Silver Age happens, the Underground Comics happens. Cause when anything, else, anything else we want to say about the Silver Age? Oh, because when you're talking about Marvel, mm-hmm. aiming for that, getting that like older audience. Yep. At DC, that's the Go-Go Checks era. The Go-Go Checks era. Yeah, they call it that because if you see the comics from that era that DC puts out, have these like checkerboard pattern around the yes, top and the bottom. Yes, and that's where the, that and that's where, for example, the Teen Titans came from. The original Teen Titans yep. were the, just the sidekicks of the main characters and are so hip it hurts. Yeah, because like, the, they uh, speak in weird um, hipster what, slang. Well, what forty-year-olds think teenagers talk like? Yeah, exactly. That's why I say it's really weird. <laughs> Well, because that's like my favorite era of DC. Right. Okay. And it, it's because you've got them, like, it does look like they're saying, well, Marvel's getting all of these, like, because Marvel's sales were climbing during this period. Right. And they're like, they're getting all these sales. What the, the, What are the kids into? And you can tell they're desperately trying to do stuff mm-hmm. that, the kids, that the kids would like. But the characters, and I imagine most of the staff, they come from, like, the previous generation of comics. Yep. So you get these bizarre mixes and these like super freaky comics that I can see having like if you were a teenager at the time just want nothing to do with, but right being like looking at them like decades later, they're just these fascinating like wow, where did that come from? like prez? Yeah, America's first teenage president. And you're like, this is what you think teenagers are like? Okay, I guess sure. Um. And well, yeah. I think you're finding them fascinating for the same reason I find the Marvel books of that era fascinating because their portrayal of New York culture, that's their take on it. Well, you're talking about DC's take on it. Oh, because the D- – yeah, but it's because the DC ones are so – they're so wrong they become their own thing. Right. Okay. They're very trippy. Yeah. Yeah, and and, and that's why. And that, that lasts for like a few years and they come up with all these crazy concepts that you're – you're like, my, my personal favorite is the Wonder Woman of that era. Oh, when she gives up her powers? She gives up her powers to become a uh, feminist, social justice, kung fu master spy. I know. <laughs> hmm, gee. All of those things, really. She and like and That's not, I, literally, that's, go, go read them. That's basically what it is. They're all about social justice and they're all about, like, and she's a kung fu master now because she's, she literally studies kung fu, and she's a spy, and she has no powers whatsoever. But they, she's just Diana Prince, kung fu master spy. Yeah, they all did that too because spy. The Teen Titans do that at one point where they give up their powers and they become like secret agents. 
Because that was super popular at that point, I know. This is yeah. the era of the Bond craze. Yeah, because that's the thing with the Teen Titans. They were working for a guy named Mr. Jupiter, who, like, nobody knew who he was. And he was this mysterious, like, figure that had them doing, like, secret agent stuff. Right, right, um, yep. Because back in, like, a few years back, when they did this storyline where Maxwell Lord was possessed by, like, an alien or something, and he's the main right. villain, and I think it was, like, Wonder Woman kills him. Right. Originally, that was supposed to be Mr. Jupiter. Oh, okay. And they changed it to Maxwell Lord because they said, nobody's going to know who the hell this guy is. Right. Huh. And okay. Yeah, and that, yeah, that all comes out of this weird... There's also the uh, the infamous DC... Uh, that DC put out a, a questionnaire for their audience. Mm-hmm. Again, because you can tell they're trying to figure out what makes Marvel tick. And it's like, they give a list of topics and they, they, they say, are you like uninterested? How how did it... It was like three categories. It was like... Okay. Do you not care? Are you interested or very interested? And it's like... Thing like... I like skateboarding. Or television. And one of them is black people. And you're like, oh my god. And that's an actual... Okay. Seven, that's an actual questionnaire they had in their books from that era. Right. And again, it's because... It's 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 the, it's that that thing I can totally see what they're doing now... what do the kids want Uh, i don't know like equal rights and and that are in do they like minorities or something i don't know let's do that i guess wow yeah yeah so that's pretty much it yep they're Mm. just doing like okay what what do our what does our audience like okay well we'll just do lots of that yeah oh we have to do a show on like dc gogo checks era comics we desperately do Okay. Okay. Well, we'll 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 put that on the list. <laughs> we'll Woo! put that on the list. Um, hmm. Okay. Yeah. It, it's it's definitely an interesting era. That mm-hmm. part I will absolutely agree with. Yep. <laughs> okay. So um, let's. Uh, okay. So let's continue our move on. So, is there anything else about the Silver Age we want to talk about? I think for for the the big main thing. Mm-hmm. I think we've hit it all. Like like I said, there's other stuff going on, but it's not really making a dent in the big overall picture. Right. Okay. That makes sense. So, all right. So let's move on to the Bronze Age. Now, mm-hmm. the Bronze Age is generally considered to start somewhere in the 70s. Yeah. There's not an actual, like, official date where it starts, according to most comic historians. Mm-hmm. Um, there's... I get like various versions of it. Um, I've seen versions that say, where is it? Where was it? I had it here somewhere. Okay, I've lost it. But anyway, but yeah, it's somewhere, it starts somewhere around like maybe 74, 75, something like that. Just because there wasn't really a particular book that really yeah. like starts it off. Or um, event, because remember like, right. you have different, like the, the, the Senate hearing has a big effect. Right. World War II had a big effect. Yeah, I could see that. Um, so, but the Bronze Age is, in a lot of ways, what people think of as comics. Actually, um, actually, okay. One thing that people do often talk about at the beginning of the Bronze Age uh-huh. um, is the whole Green Lantern, Green Arrow comic. Oh, okay. So a lot of people do consider that possibly from October nineteen seventy one, the beginning of the Bronze Age. Although there's, um, there's is, one that precedes it. Is there? Because yeah. I thought that was the very first comic that was released 
if since 1956 without the comics code on it. No, that was the uh, Spider-Man 96, which was just like the year before, I think. Okay. The drug issue. The drug issue, yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the drug issue is also the one, of course, that... Um, it's also about drugs, of course, the Green Lantern, Green Arrow. It's where they discover yep. Speedy, his side, Green Arrow's sidekick, is basically a total heroin addict at this point. Yeah, because what, what happens was um, mm-hmm. the Spider-Man one was kind of a little, I'm going to say, dragnet If you've ever seen Dragnet, right. you know exactly what I'm getting at. Right. Because they wanted to do a story about drugs, because that was kind of a big concern at the time. Right. And the comics code said, no drugs ever. So Stan Lee said, not a hell with you. We're going to do it. And they put the book out. Right. But when you read it, it's still kind of a little cartoony in how it handles drugs. Right. Like, as I recall, a guy takes, like, LSD and jumps off a building flapping his arms and stuff because he thinks he can fly. Right, yeah. Which isn't realistic. Mm. But when DC did it, they said, well, we wanted to do that, but we wanted to do it a little more realistic. And that's why they said, no, Speedy's hooked on smack. Yep. That's pretty realistic. Mm. And I can kind of see that. Mm-hmm. Like the the Bronze Age kind of, it's characterized by two things. Mm-hmm. Number one, and I think this is why people will consider, I I you could consider the Green Lantern Green Arrow uh, issue eighty five the beginning, right? Because the Bronze Age is characterized with they're trying to write, for lack of a better word, mature stories, right? Because they realize they have an older audience and that audience is getting older, mm-hmm. and they want to appeal to them. But the other thing that's going on at the same time is rapidly declining sales. Yeah. Yeah, they're looking at sa- their sales are dropping compared to where they were before. And they were pretty high before. Yeah, like in, in the 50s and even the 60s. But by the 70s, there's – and I can't, I can't think of anything specific mm-hmm. event that kicked that off. Right. But you can see – I think part of it too, like um, people were moving away from the old stuff. Right. Uh, at the time, early 70s, one of Marvel's biggest sellers was Conan. Right. Which wasn't a superhero. Hmm. When you look at the, uh, if you look at the subscription lists from that time. Yep. Marvel and DC are all, they're still doing, uh, like horror comics and Western comics. Oh, yeah. And, uh, in 1970, they published, uh, the Conan the Barbarian comics. Yeah. Uh, King Cole, Red Sonja, Solomon Kane. Mm-hmm. Uh, DC responded with Warlord, Beowulf. Uh, Faftered in the Grey Mouser comics, Tarzan mm-hmm. um, started coming out from Gold Key. Um, yep. Then they also started doing John Carter and yep. Mtor, and um, there were some other characters as well. I mean, this was actually a sword and sorcery boom going on in the beginning of the seventies as well. Yeah, yep. and so yeah, we're getting some of that early space fantasy and sword and sorcery stuff being revived at this point, mm-hmm. and so they they're trying to do different stuff. Yeah, they're trying. They're, they're trying different things at this point. Now, and, and, and that's that's out of desperation. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. That's well. Remember, business people are always forced out of desperation yeah. to try different things. <laughs> yeah, because at, at one point too, if you remember, I think it's seventy five or seventy six. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, DC had a new like uh, executive editor. I think she was right, and they were going to make a big push, and they put out this big two page ad. Right. The new DC. There's no stopping us now, and it lists like twenty new books that are coming out. Right. And like half of them never did. Oh, okay. And it was because, again, they were, it's that idea. Nobody, nobody knew what the next big thing was going to be. 
but they okay. desperately they desperately needed it because like the old standbys were starting to go into decline. Right. Um, I think part of the problem might have been what happened to uh, like your superhero books in the nineties. Because mm-hmm. again, we only lived the same two decades over and over. Is that in the seventies they were trying? They knew they had an older audience, and they were writing to them. But that kind of made it impenetrable to a new audience or to kids, right? So you weren't bringing in that next generation of readers, right? And two things happened that kind of rectify that. <laughs> okay, and they are. I think you were edging up to the big one, the thing that saved the comic industry. Uh, the death of Gwen Stacy? No. Um, the uh, getting chucking the Comics Code Authority? No, that that didn't happen for a little bit. Okay, so what's the big one? I was, of course, going to refer to the comic Brother Power the Geek. See, that's not the answer I would have given. Okay. <laughs> no, yeah. it wasn't. Oh, well, you know, you know what ended up saving the comic industry? Um, actually, I don't. What was the, what saved them? Star Wars. Oh, yes, yes, that small <laughs> film. I just always forget about it. I mean, it's just yep. such a yeah. Because what happened is yes, okay, continue. So Marvel decided to start experimenting with this thing called tie-in comics. Yep. Um, now they'd already been doing it, obviously, because I just mentioned, of course, Conan and all those other ones. Mm-hmm. But Marvel noticed that hey, there's a lot of money in these tie-in comics things. Yeah. And so they started publishing progressively more and more of them as the 70s would go on. Mm-hmm. Um, they would publish Master of Kung Fu to, to go in with the Kung Fu craze that was going on during that period. Mm-hmm. They would publish, of course, um, movie tie-ins like Planet of the Apes, Godzilla, Rogan's Run, Indiana Jones, yeah. uh, Space Odyssey, Star Wars, Man from Atlantis, Battlestar Galactica, A-Team, Welcome yeah. Back, Cotter. That was DC. I mean... Welcome Back, Cotter um, was DC. Welcome back, Carter. Was DC? I thought that yeah. was Marvel, but anyway, whatever. Marvel and DC. Okay, they well, DC was doing it too. Yep. Actually, um, Marvel and DC were swapping around characters because they, uh, I think they both did Doc Savage at one point. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, because it, it was it was any license that you could get that because it, it the idea was it came with a ready made audience. Yeah. Yep, that's true. Well, anything, again, licenses you can get. Things <coughs> haven't changed, really. People are just desperate for any, you know, known property that they can capitalize on. Yeah. It's almost, you know, it's kind of the same thing today, of course, with people constantly remaking movies and TV shows from previous eras because mm. they're known names and they're yeah. things that we can capitalize on. And and tying into that idea, what, what happened during, like, the 70s, superheroes were crazy popular, mm-hmm. but, not the, but not the comic books. They were popular as, like, licensing properties. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, we were getting some superhero cartoons at this point. Yeah. Uh, Filmation, I believe, was doing some. They might have been during the 60s, but I believe during the 70s. Well, during the 70s, we had the Super Friends. Yep. God help us. Yeah, I know. (laughs) The no-violence superhero comics. Yep. But that was the the idea. You you saw them. Superheroes were cartoons. They were action figures. They were T-shirts. People didn't think of them as comic books. It's kind of what happened when the movies took off and the in like the aughts that yeah. the Avengers movie comes out and everybody on Earth sees it twice, but the comic book has a print run of like fifty thousand copies. Yeah. Because people don't think of them as comic books anymore. And yeah, that was yeah, exactly that was what was happening in the seventies. Yep. Well, and I think that that's continued in a lot of ways. I think for a lot of people, for example, 
especially the current generation. And um, if you ask them about the X-Men and how, you know, their love of the X-Men, they're going to tell you about X-Men animated series. They're not going to tell you about the comics. Yep. I mean, it depends on who they are. True Mm -hmm. geeks will probably tell you about the comics, but, uh, but yeah, a lot of people will just talk about X-Men animated series, especially non-comic fans. They know the X-Men, but that's how they know them. Or the movies. Or the movies. Yeah, exactly. Which are now old enough. Um, the first X-Men movie, I think, came out in... 99? Was, was it 99? I think it was 99. I, it was, I think it was, thought it was around 2000. Anyway, around that period, yeah. Um, so, th- so think about how old that is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Although they tried to make an X-Men movie in the 80s. It just didn't quite work out so well. Because <laughs> uh-huh. again, okay, so what happened is, so superheroes properties had a big boom, but the comics weren't doing that well. And then, of course... The sales are dropping, and then Star Wars comes out, yep. and Marvel Comics does a Star Wars comic, and they sell like a gazillion copies. Yep, because and any, it pretty much saves the company. Yeah, anything with Star Wars on it sold a gazillion whatevers. Yep, and that really, really helped reboot. Um, and during the seventies, the whole Marvel in well, Marvel Comics basically. See, Marvel Comics history is basically a history of almost going bankrupt, and then stuff happens. <laughs> Yeah. That's pretty much Marvel Comics' entire history. Yeah. Well, that kind of reboots everything, though, because uh, DC mm-hmm. wasn't doing well. And comics in general picked up, and I have a funny feeling it's because what happened was the marketing thing in reverse. Right. That the comic book came out, people were desperate for uh, for anything Star Wars, so they bought the comic, and then they'd go, oh, wait, there are these other comic books? Yeah, yeah, pretty and, much. And this was the time when a comic book could still be an impulse buy. Mm-hmm. So they were pick, cheap, ten yeah, cents. Yeah, they'd they'd pick a few other things up. Um, companies started uh, playing on the Star Wars formula. Yep. So you got again, they'd capitalize that sort of sorcery boom. Even superheroes of the day started going that science fantasy route. Yep. Like that was where you got like say the all new, all different X Men that in no time at all were part of a dealing with an intergalactic empire and. Oh yeah, exactly. They were they were involved with their own uh, little Star Wars saga. Yeah. Um, although, wait a moment. The let me check though. Interesting question. Uh, the okay, yeah. The all new X Men was introduced in seventy five. So yes, yeah, that would actually. So the the whole Shire saga would have tied in nicely with the X Men actually. Yep. Or sorry, sorry, the whole Shire saga would have tied in nicely with Star Wars. Yep. And it was again, it was part of like that that zeitgeist of the time. mm Hmm. And then that, like I say, that rebooted the comics industry. Um, one of the things that happens in this in the the seventies during the Bronze Age is basically every other company dies. <laughs> yes, there's that too. Now, was that largely part due to the whole shifting of the uh, distributors? Um, I think what what ends up happening uh, the 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 shenanigans with the distributors sort of comes into play going into the eighties. Okay. But you had comics in general were in decline. Mm-hmm. And because of that, only the, the biggest were able to kind of weather the storm. Right. So again, by the early eight, yeah, by the early 80s, like most of the, uh, like I think by then Charlton's gone, like DC bought mm-hmm. them. Um, Modern didn't last very long. Red Circle is like gone. Like all the, the little guys, you've got your Marvel and DC. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for reasons we'll be getting into shortly, they become what people think of comic books as. 
Right. Uh, you've got Archie because as long as people have grandparents, Archie comics will still sell. Right. Uh, you had Harvey was still around. Right. But remember, Harvey's not going to last too much longer. Like by the end of the eighties, that they're gone, and they were another huge company. Mm-hmm. So you have this overall decline, and then what ends up happening is Star Wars comes out, boosts the industry. Marvel and DC kind of get their second wind. Right. They take off. Um, what's going on behind the scenes at this time mm-hmm. that that does become important is you've got the beginnings of the independent comics. Right. And like we said, a lot of the early independents kind of capitalized on the distribution chains that were established by the undergrounds. Yeah. Some of them come out of that. You also have the beginning of the comic book store mm-hmm. by the end of the 70s. And, right. and what happens is the comic book store, we've mentioned this before, is catering to people who aren't reading mainstream comics. Yep. And that's why they were called independents. And, and they become totally like their own thing. Yep. Now, the mainstream guys, Marvel and DC, over the 80s will mine from them. Like, they'll take artists, they'll take ideas and that. But the independents for a long time were their own thing. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, and that that starts officially with Warp Graphics in uh, 77 doing ElfQuest. Ah, so ElfQuest was the herald of the whole independent uh, black and white movement. Officially, they they were the beginning of the independents. Not just the black and white movement, they were the beginning of independent comics. Okay. And I think shortly thereafter, you get like Eclipse. Right. And, and then going into the 80s, you get First, and First was mm-hmm. another one of the, uh, the 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 bigger ones. Right. And then you get a bunch, like what, what happens is the people who gave up on, there's people who gave up on comic books. Right. But still thought they might enjoy that kind of thing. And some of them keyed into these independents, and you had the comic book stores, which is where they buy stuff. And there's enough of an audience, and that audience starts building, that you get comic book stores in, in big cities. Right. And they bring you the new stuff. They also, a big thing that comic book shops do is back issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. Lots of them. Like, that that was basically, like, their bread and butter, was the collectors coming in for the back issues, the fans coming in for the new independents. Right. Well, comics at this point had become a collector's item. Yep. They literally were an investment at this point for the very first time in history. Um, and suddenly, of course, we comic book collectors were and fans were suddenly uh, respected because suddenly in American culture, comic books were worth money and therefore they had respect for the first time in a long time. Kind of. You're getting a little bit ahead. You're getting the, definitely the beginning of that. Right. But that doesn't happen until the modern age. Well, no, not exactly. Ish. I mean, well, okay, ish, you're right. Because, um, of, yeah, you're right. Okay, that's true. Because the modern age is generally defined, as we said earlier, as starting with, uh, in 86, with the release of the Dark Knight Returns and the Watchmen. Mm-hmm. Um, s- some people would take it a year back and say Crisis on Infinite Earth started yeah. the, the modern age uh, in 85. But either way, Basically, comics were in for a big change because the modern age begins. Yeah, I, I take it back to Crisis. Okay. Because, again, what Crisis on Infinite Earths did, it, mm. was, it was DC saying, well, a lot of the people who are, like, reading our books, 
Right. They're older. We've got like, at this point, we've got, geez, like 40 something years of history with our characters. Mm-hmm. They've gone through two or three iterations. We've like, pile, you've, you've gone from like the dark, gritty pulp hero Batman that just guns guys down to like right. Batman space cop who flies the bat jet to planet Schmeedle because the Schmeedleans are having trouble that the Uggy Buggies are taking their woofle plants and stuff. And Oh my God, not the woofle plants. <laughs> But you've you've got all this going, and I said, well, we want to kind of make it cohesive. We're going to pare it mm-hmm. down. We're going to do this big event that's going to kind of reset our universe, mm-hmm. uh, give us our chance to do to basically be Marvel from the sixties is what they wanted, right? Uh, so we'll we'll do that. And what happens at that point is there's an acknowledgement of story and continuity. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the big selling point. That's what makes the modern era is that people are saying, well, no, story. And and although the mainstream guys at the time were Hmm. saying, no, they're not just for kids, they're literature. But it was that I... hmm? It was that battle by the people who appreciated comic books with... uh... Versus the people who still saw them as kids stuff. That was a big part of our youth. Yeah, and this is where it gets a little, the era gets muddy. Because I think what you had a few years prior with the independent boom Mm -hmm. was those ideas. Because the independent books, they were mostly creator-owned. Right. It would be one or two people writing the story. They could have it progress. They could have it progress Mm -hmm. how they wanted. They were writing for older audience members. They were doing, like, more... I guess, complex issues with their books. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of sets the stage for the official modern era. Right. And the independents are starting to build, they're starting to build, but what hampers them is the black and white glut. Okay, how so? Well, because anybody with, you know, a couple of bucks and some ambition could publish a comic. Mm -hmm. And they did. And And, they did. And most of them sucked. Uh, We've had the people from, uh, we had Shane and Dave from Stupid Comics on. Yep. And if you want an example, I recommend their entire website. Um, Pretty much, yep. Yeah. And they have an 80s section. And yeah. what was happening at the time was that comic comic books that sold to newsstands could be returned. Mm-hmm. So if they didn't sell, the, the the distributors would send them back to, to the publisher and get a refund. Mm-hmm. Comic shops didn't do that. Yeah. So right off the bat, Marvel and DC were desperate to get into the comic shops because then they wouldn't have to deal with returns. The people in the comic shops didn't really care for Marvel and DC because they wanted this new stuff. The black and white glut hits. The comic shop owners have to order like months ahead of time. They they don't know if The Protectors is going to actually be a hit or worth reading or, or anything. Mm-hmm. So they have to guess, and it's killing them because they're getting a lot of this stuff in because more and more is coming out, and more and more of it is terrible. Right. So they start falling to the old standbys. They start falling to names they recognize, the stuff that sells. You get the bottom fallout of the independents because all these different companies that are popping up can't be sustained. They're not getting the sales because nobody's taking a chance on anything new. The comic shops are starting to see this like decline in, in material that they're they can bring in they don't know what to do marvel and dc make the the jump they get a lot of press with a year after crisis with like the dark knight returns the watchmen mm-hmm. uh, we talked about the speculator market being created essentially by the punisher 
Right. That yeah, yeah. CNN ran a story about the Punisher comic, and it was mostly old comics are worth money. So that's bringing more people and looking for your Marvels and your DCs. Right. Exactly. And I think that's kind of uh, that's kind of uh, again uh, an example of how we have a mainstream comic in it. We did for a long time. And all of this other stuff is, is kind of side stuff that feeds into it one way or another, but you've got this giant juggernaut that just keeps on rolling. Yeah. And yeah, that takes us the mainstream. The modern era kind of becomes Marvel and DC and those who wish to copy them. Yep, pretty and, much. And there's still books that make decent sales, but they're not... At this time, if a Marvel comic had a print run of 250000 they'd cancel it because it was a failure. Yeah, a print run of 250000 um, do you just for general reference and comparison, folks? Do you know what the average Marvel comic prints today? I think it's like forty, twenty. Holy shit! <laughs> and that's a well, thing. I, I've heard they're they're running in, tw- in as twenty. Yikes! Um, we'll, but we'll get to that in a, in a yeah. little bit. Um, so we get into the modern comic era. So. Everybody and their brother starts printing comics. Eventually, we go through. We've gone through the teen, uh, the mutant ninja turtles boom yep. and the black and white glut. Yep. And then there's a whole big boom as this new young hip generation of artists start coming out of Marvel. Yep. Um, you know Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld. These new hip young artists completely redefine. You know a lot of the Marvel characters and like really help. You know bringing a lot of Marvel sales in. Yeah. But there's a small problem. You know, Mar- we, you know, when they say, look, we're the ones bringing in all the money, Marvel Comics says, yeah, and you better keep doing it too if you know what's good for you. Mm-hmm. So these hip young you know, artists and writers, mostly artists, get <laughs> together and say, you know, what would happen if we all quit and just took our fandom and created a whole new comic company of our own? And they all say, "Hey, that's a that's a great idea." I think it's Todd McFarlane was basically the mastermind behind this because he's yeah. he's more of the businessman type of the set. Yeah, and I, the others just kind of followed along from what I, think, I know. I think it was McFarlane and Leafield's wife because I think his wife is a big like a like she's the business end of their partnership. Right. Okay. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah. So they basically say, "Yep, why are you making money for these guys?" And like, like you know, of course, at this point, like merchandise is selling, and for big bucks for Marvel, based on the art from these car- these guys, um, this is the point where Leefield has redefined the you know the uh, what is it the X Force at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was yeah. He's created X Force. He redefined the New Mutants and eventually yeah. became X Force. And yeah, all this stuff's going on. Jim Lee's like the hot young name, and so they all basically get they all get together and form Image Comics. Yep. One of the best named, uh, most appropriately named, uh, comic companies in the history of comicdom. Yeah, I would say a little bit before that is the beginning of the postmodern era. Okay, why so? I would say the the be- postmodern begins with uh, X Men number one. Oh, okay, yeah, I see your point. Yeah, because what, what happens in the image era, you had during the, the modern era, as as mm-hmm. I've been referring to it, you had this idea of designer comics starting up. Right. That uh, John Byrne was a big name. He was the first name I can remember them really pushing. Mm-hmm. And what happens postmodern, um, postmodern is all about marketing. It's all about the name. It has... The, the, the comic itself has very little to do with anything anymore. 
Mm-hmm. And X-Men number one, what kind of happened was uh, Chris Claremont had been doing the X-Men for a hundred years. It was right. it was one of Marvel's consecutive top sellers. It was super popular. A lot of people say it's because one guy wrote it for so long, you could kind of slow burn your stories and build up to them. And he did. He did all kinds of great stories and sagas with it. Yep. And then Jim Lee comes along. He starts getting super popular. Mm-hmm. He's the artist. He starts yep. getting more and more input. He starts overriding Claremont. And then basically Marvel says, that's nah, yours now. Yep. And there's you're more popular. You can you're you're running it, and Claremont's like, okay, screw you. Yeah, and that's where I think the postmodern starts because it's all about name recognition. Right. Yeah. And okay, that... I can see that. That's so. That's the point where it's more about the artist and more about the well, artist basically. Yeah. Than it is actually about the book itself. And then that's the era of like the marketing gimmick because you've got 15 different hollow foil covers. And if if you mail like 15 proof of purchases in, you can get this limited edition zero issue of the story. And, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then that was what it was all about. The comics themselves, the content of them was less and less important. It was the name. It was the gimmick. It was the mm-hmm. big, it was pouches, pouches and cross hatching. Right, yeah. You saw that too because basically anyone who could draw like Jim Lee, somebody somewhere would publish your stuff. Right. And a lot of like what was left of the independents had either completely almost withdrawn from the industry wholesale. They were sort of their own thing now. Right. Or they were busy desperately trying to be image. That makes, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Well, Image made a shit ton of money, so of course. Yeah, and they made it in, like, no time at all. Well, yeah, because if I recall right, uh, Wildcats was was the first one, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. And it sold, like, two million copies, yeah. something like that. It was, uh, I don't know if, was it two? I think it was, it might have been a million. Because I think officially the the, the X-Men number one was the first comic in a long time to hit a million sales. Right. But I think that's just because it had like 50 different covers. Yes, yeah. Well, they did a whole bunch of little stunts with it and such. And the speculators were in full bloom at the beginning of this era. So they would buy eight copies of the 15 different covers that everything had. Yep, exactly. Uh, let's see. The Wildcats were okay. They were the apex of the speculator boom. Mm-hmm. Um, one million copies for the early issues. So yeah, they were hitting the million mark. Yeah. So Wildcats number one comes out a year later. Wildcats number two comes out. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was the problem with them, yeah. right? Yeah, they were coming out at a snail's pace. You'd think we're writing million dollar tickets. We should probably pump them out as fast as we possibly can. No, not really. Well, and especially because to make the money, they didn't have to. Because well, they had to publish. Yeah, but you'd put one issue out. You'd sell 50 different action figures based on it, 13 sketchbooks. You'd license it out for a movie or a cartoon that may or may not happen. You'd do guest appearances, you know. Right. No, there was a Wild Cards cartoon. No one remembers it. And it was, oh. like, I think it was horribly animated. But, yeah, there was a Wild Cards cartoon. Yeah, there, 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 there was. And it was kind of... Um, Kind of well, because that came out too. Remember, this was the era where animation was in decline. Oh yeah, exactly. So when these things would come out, you get this flashy like image comic with all this super detailed fussy artwork in it, and that cross hatching Mm -hmm. everywhere. And then you'd get this cartoon that had no budget, 
Right. So there, it's it's just like basically like skeleton frame illustration and that, and I think that's why most of the cartoons didn't really do so well. Right. Actually, the Wildcats cartoon came out uh, <coughs> thirteen episodes, came out in ninety four, and was produced by Nelvana. <laughs> mm-hmm. And yeah, if you've ever seen it, well. Yeah, there's yeah. Just go look it up on YouTube. Have fun. It's, it's one of the ninetieth things you'll ever see. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. <laughs> They're heroes, not zeros, after all. Ooh. <laughs> so, but anyway. Yep. Okay, there we go. So that, and then the other thing that happens during this era is this is when Marvel and DC get scared and start buying up all the distributors. Right. Yeah. Because they think that's what they think that okay, what we'll do is we'll just corner the market by owning all the distributors. Yeah. Um, but wait, was it? I thought Marvel also was buying distributors too. They both did because it was at right. this by this point, if I remember correctly, uh, the only two left because in the eighties there were a bunch. There was like fifteen, twenty comic book distributors for North America. Right. I think at this point it was Capital and Diamond was pretty much it. Okay. And then, uh, I'm a little fuzzy on this, but Marvel bought one, DC bought the other. Okay, right. Yep. I remember that, yeah. And then that kind of, what that did is that created the, that squeezed everybody else out. Right. Because there were other companies that were kind of catch, Image was big, uh, Valiant was big. Mm Mm-hmm. Ah, shoot, who did the Ultraverse? Oh, the Ultraverse was, uh, wasn't that Valiant? Was it Valiant? I thought, because Valiant had all the old uh, gold key heroes. Fine, I'll check. Ultraverse was Malibu. Malibu, that's right. Yeah, there we go, Malibu, yeah. Yeah, and these guys were basically kind of following the image formula. And they were starting to get popular too, so they were sort of getting squeezed out of the market. And then what ends up happening is... um, Mm-hmm. If you were a reader at that time, and you kind of, because you can only read so many Batman comics, and then you know what's going to happen. Course. Oh yeah, yeah. There was nothing else for you in the comic shops because everybody else was getting squeezed out. Right. So when the speculators gave up, because you know everybody bought fifteen copies of everything and put it away. Of course they did. Yeah, that kicked the legs completely out of the North American comic book industry. Mm-hmm. Which is why I consider the postmodern era ends with. What would it end with? Uh, what ki- I don't know. What does it end with? What is it that the event that kicked the legs out of the uh, North American comic book industry? Um, it's getting late, man. Okay. Um, that would be what is it? The death what? of Superman. Oh, right. Of course. Yep. Yes. Because it it started innocuously enough. They were they were gonna mm-hmm. like kill off Superman, and the thing is, again, slow news day. The papers caught wind of it, and it became the big thing. Yep. And then all the speculators would buy like twenty copies, and the next month thirty copies, and you'd see the sales going up. Because the only issue that's worth anything anymore, really, is the first Doomsday one, mm-hmm. where it's just like his hand crushing a bird. Because Superman's sales were down, there was no hype on this. Right, yeah. But then everybody bought, and they had all these events, and the new Superman came out, and then the return of Superman, and they published tons of them, and everybody put them away, and every comic shop in North America has a basement full of these things. 
And the speculators said, wait, everybody put them away. They're not going to be worth anything. And the bottom just literally overnight dropped. Yeah, yeah. Because I worked at a comic shop, and I remember when that started. The book would come in Friday and sell for five bucks. Saturday, you'd be selling them for 20, and you'd have lineups for them. By, like, next Wednesday, they'd be 50, but listing at 50 bucks. Hmm. Yeah, it was amazing. It was quite a heady time. <coughs> yeah, and it was disturbing because you knew the bottom was going to fall out sooner or later because everybody was doing this. Yeah. And then well, it, yeah. Then it did. And then I think that's what led to what I call the post-postmodern era. Okay. Where everything is based on uh, events every year or corrections every quarter of the year. Yep. Where super, where superhero comics are no longer around the the story, but they're all just lead-ins to the next big uh, crossover event where you have to buy twenty different books. That yep. era, yeah, because, um, yeah, what I see happen was when the speculators left, uh, the sales of these books that were selling like five hundred thousand copies a month and up mm-hmm. dropped down to like two hundred. Yeah. And I think that what you were getting at that point was kind of a more realistic indication of readership. Mm-hmm. That these are the people who are, were following the story. But that sudden collapse scared the hell out of everybody. And what you got was Marvel and DC as the mainstream mm-hmm. kind of isolated themselves. Yep. They weren't bringing in a new audience. So they've got the same old audience they've had since the 80s. And what the events kind of do is they just swap around the same readers over and over. Mm -hmm. So when DC does their big new event, they'll all buy those for a month or two just to see what's going on. And and this is also the era of nerd rage to see how they ruined Spider-Man this time. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Oh, you're talking about A New Day. I'm talking about a whole pile of the Clone Saga, A New Day. Clone like, Saga, A New Day, all, all that stuff, what, yeah. What was the one with all the different Venoms? Like, there's there's tons of them. Oh, I don't remember what that thing was called. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the Symbiote Saga or something. Symbi- yeah, I think it was. Yeah, I think you're right. And of course, also, we at this point, we're also going to get into um, the Marvel Ultimate line. Yep. Where Marvel basically reboots all of their characters again. Mm-hmm. And makes them all new, you know, twentieth century. Sorry, twentieth first century versions of the characters. Yeah. And you also, which means they don't fight very much and they whine a lot. <laughs> but you also had that happening even before because you had like Marvel twenty ninety nine. You had Marvel yep. Max. You had yep. DC just rebooting the whole universe every couple of years. And yep. that's and that's what they're doing. They're not bringing anyone in, and that's why I think like people don't care about the comics even if they love the characters because if you're Mm -hmm. a fan from the outside like the movies well the stories are so different that even if you get into it next year it's going to change up again so you lose interest yeah yeah pretty much and yeah it's it's just the ever diminishing crowd of oldsters that kind of are just jumping back and forth depending on who's got the new thing because it's a bit of a distraction for a few months and then you wait for the next one and then right you complain on the internet over and over and over about it. Actually, I think you kind of missed something, though. Okay. Uh, Marvel actually had a uh, bankruptcy at the end of the 90s, if I remember right, as well. Right. Um, and that's the point where Marvel got bought out. I'm trying to remember, not by Disney. This was the company that bought them before Disney. Oh. Um, they ended up being bought out. And that's the 
point, if it wasn't already, where Marvel truly, truly had to start making a profit. Like they were literally a profit-driven company. And that was part of the thing that was driving the constant stream of, well, of crossovers and such. Because yeah. they were literally trying to make their quarterly profits. Yeah, and that's that's the other problem with the events, too, if you're a new fan, is that you can't just read them. Because mm-hmm. they tie them into like 18 other books that you really don't care about. Yep, yep, pretty much. Um, one good thing, though, that did come out during the from the postmodern era, though, is the rise of, and this is from because of, partly because of Image, is the rise of creator rights. Yeah. And also the rise of these semi-independent studios. So you have, would have all these little, quote-unquote, studios that would pop up. And then they were now being published by like IDW and a few others that basically exist to just publish these smaller studios products. Yeah. Like they basically just pick the best of these smaller studios and then publish them. I think that's awesome. Well, there's another catch too that I think during the post-postmodern era that happens is um, mm-hmm. because Marvel and DC kind of cornered the market on comic book distribution, mm-hmm. a lot of the new stuff that comes out doesn't end up sequestered in the comic shops. That's true. That companies like um, the one everybody would know would be The Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. That it starts in the comic shops, but they did the compilations that sell in bookstores or online. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, that started yeah in the two thousands, and it definitely was a big influence on things. That you could now literally just publish a comic. In some ways, actually, comics started to be published as a prelude to being collected. As a graphic novel and stuck in bookstores. Yeah. Where they probably make you sell even more copies. Yep. I can see that. So that became a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that was that was kind of the good that came out of it. Because once... Because Marvel and DC, when they kind of took over in the 80s, mm-hmm. they started contracting their content because they just run towards whatever was working. Mm-hmm. And then in the 90s, when Image took off, that's what everybody did. And I think... Um, when you got to like the post postmodern era and the bottom had totally fallen out, mm-hmm. anybody who got into comic books at that point did it to get into comic books. Right. Whereas especially the 90s, it was a lucrative enough position. People would get into comic books as a way to make money until they become screenwriters or license out yep. their properties and that. Well, even today, actually, a lot of especially comic miniseries or graphic novels, especially are published not to become a comic book series, but as almost a pitch for, you know, to be a movie or whatever. That's still very common. Yeah, it, it was super common for a while there because people, because Hollywood was buying up every second original graphic novel that came out. They were buying up all the rights left, right, and center. Yeah, but you're, you're getting people who uh, specifically want to do comics as mm-hmm. well, like in greater numbers. Right. Especially like, say, nowadays, which I can't think of what comes after post postmodern we'll call it now now that works but when you get to now mm-hmm. even if people are thinking of licensing their 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 property out they're still doing a comic book right it's not or is it some of them will be doing like if you work for idw you might be doing like uh the lone ranger now Mm-hmm. But you're a comic book artist who's doing the lone ranger you're a comic yeah. book writer who's doing the lone ranger that's true. And that's sort of a little a little different because that was when you had the designer comics of the 90s. You had a lot of these guys that, yeah, would become celebrities right away mm-hmm. and then just sort of stop producing. Well, once they made a ton of money. Yeah, and, and then that was it. It wasn't about doing the books at all. It was about 
making that ton of money and now I'm done. Right. I can see that. Mm -hmm. Well, and, uh, but yeah, yeah, as you said, they they were getting into it as a way to make money. Although I think most of them got into it to be comic artists, but just once they made enough money, they're like, you know, this is hard work and I've just made a ton of money. Why do I have to keep doing it? Yeah, I think sort of, but I always think back, um, there's one mm-hmm. guy who was, a uh, he's the son of a friend of my mother's mm-hmm. who actually became like a, a big cartoonist. And if I said his name, people would know who I'm talking about. Right. And talking with him about it back when he was just starting, his whole motivation was, as he put it, it beats getting a real job. Right. Okay. And I think there was a lot of that back in that designer era. Mm. And that was where you got like the image guys like Todd McFarlane. Right. Who I've I've been told and I've seen interviews and that that kind of lean this way is like the ego that walks like a man. (laughs) Right. And he did some good stuff, but again, it stopped being about doing comics real quick Mm. because I think it was like he did spawn. I think it was like by like issue nine, he was already like had other people working on it. Right. Because then it became about marketing Todd McFarlane and Todd McFarlane Industries and all that kind of thing. Right. Okay. So since we're running a little late on time, let's, Mm -hmm. let's move things forward a bit since we're in the modern era. So what's happened in the last couple of years? Well, a couple of things have happened. Uh, Marvel and DC have both gone online, which means you can read, you can subscribe to their websites and read many of their comics, including much of their old library online if you want to for a monthly subscription, or you can buy them online or however that works. I don't know, but I'm guessing they're producing some original comics just for online. I don't subscribe to either of them, so I can't comment. Right. But they don't think they're. But their focus hasn't been there so far, anyway. Yeah. Um, they've both rebooted their universes, or at least DC has, and I think Marvel has probably two or three times <laughs> in the last five years. Possibly once while we were recording this. Possibly once while we were recording <laughs> yeah. this. Exactly. Um, Marvel has done a having been bought by Disney. Um, has actually moved from uh, New York to L.A., or at least California. I believe right. it's L.A. So they can be closer to, well, Marvel Studios. Mm. And um, rumor has it, well, that's actually not a rumor, actually. We're getting into a new interesting era, actually, where you were talking about celebrity uh, artists and writers and such. Actually, we're getting into a whole new era of celebrity artists and writers, partly mm. thanks to the focus on comic culture. Right. But... We're also getting into an era of celebrity artists and writers who can who can look at their uh, comic book positions and that as a, a bully pulpit, mm-hmm. some would say, for their own agendas. Right. Um, which I'm not saying whether those agendas are good or bad, but let's just say that they some of them have strongly taken to uh, using the using this as a as a position to uh, uh, pine about social justice issues and such Mm -hmm. and um and okay they that's you know they're they're hired to well one of the things that happened is when they did the move they lost a lot of the old guard right and i what i've heard is at least for d for marvel i don't know about dc i think dc is still a little more traditional but basically they replaced most of the old guard male ones with basically young female uh writers and editors Mm mm-hmm which apparently there's a lot of them at the new Marvel, especially young female editors. And that's when we're mostly talking about when I'm saying this. Right. Um, and they've basically, you know, they see it as their, um, you know, their, 
mission to um, uh, update the characters. And probably that's what they were told to do, right? I mean, they were told to update the characters. So they're changing them in various ways, mm -hmm. which has done a good job from what I've seen of, of alienating a lot of the older fans. But then again, maybe that's a good thing, actually. Because... Oh, no, let me finish for a sec here, okay? One of the Marvel Comics' problems has always been that, they can't, that they're that they perpetually trying to both please the older fans and bring in new ones, and they're failing at both. Right. It's one of the reasons why Marvel goes bankrupt every 10 years, or has so far. And perhaps maybe the, this approach that they're taking where the new, the new uh, editors and writers that are coming in, I can say from what I've seen of their work, a lot of them are much more influenced by um, anime and manga mm -hmm. than the previous generations were. So there's definitely a strong attempt to appeal to the a crowd that's grown up with anime and manga to make the you know to introduce young heroes who are you know growing in their abilities and uh, learning about what it's like to be a hero often under the members mentorship of some of the you know the older characters who have now moved into more senior or retired masterly positions mm -hmm. and are no longer the focus um and maybe that'll work out for them i mean maybe that'll actually be something that brings a new generation in the only problem with that theory, just to finish things off, is, as I said, I've heard that they're selling on average about only 20,000 copies, which makes it an all-time low. And in fact, there's someone who pointed out that 20,000 copies is actually a fairly standard print run, assuming that they're, that they're selling a couple copies to every comic shop across the nation. Mm -hmm. That would cover 20,000 copies. Yeah. It doesn't mean that anyone is actually reading them. <laughs> it, mean, it means that they have, that the, that it means that the comic shops are buying 20,000 copies. Mm -hmm. Presumably... At gunpoint. They would continue to... Maybe presumably at gunpoint. Presumably, they wouldn't keep buying them if they weren't able to sell them, but... That may or may not be the case. Sorry, continue. Sorry, you had something you wanted to say? I think... See, I think you're kind of right. I'm kind of wrong and kind of right. That's, that's my usual state, dude. That's my <laughs> usual state. Go ahead. Yeah, because what, what you run into, and, and, and this is... Um, I do think mm -hmm. when you look at, especially Marvel, mm -hmm. they're trying to, like, modern up their stuff. Right. But I think, because you see all kinds of people that complain mostly about Marvel. Oh my god, you're politically correcting up my comic books. Ah. I think a lot of what you're getting is the execs are doing what they did like in the 70s. What are the kids into these days? Nah, social justice and not working. Okay, do that, you know. And that's why you get this, this weird kind of where are you going? the only the only thing is is that unlike back in those days they said okay where are the kids into these days okay they're into like the hippie stuff mm -hmm. well then generally speaking they told their you know fellow old white guys you know uh do stuff about you know you know, young asians or young blacks or whatever and that was that's you know that's where we get marvel's go-go go-go checks comics and such Whereas today, they, they did the opposite, which maybe was the right way to do it. I have no idea. They hired a whole bunch of young women to do it. Yeah. And so who, who are, you know, 20-somethings and who are actually, you know, kids of today, so to speak. They, they did, but the problem that they then run into is the people mm -hmm. who would enjoy those books right. are never going to see them because they don't go into comic book shops that's the problem that they've run into. Yeah. Yeah, I've heard they, Marvel did that announcement just a year, was last year, I think, where they said, we tried catering to social justice, you know, 
people mm-hmm. and the people who believe in social justice who wanted a black spider-man and a female female thor and you know an asian hulk and all that and no everyone cheered us on and there were millions of likes on facebook and then nobody bought our books yeah because there's nobody nobody goes into a, the only people going to the comic shops are like 40 and there, therein lies the problem. Yeah, because they're um, they're not going to enjoy yeah. that. They're going to complain that you're raping my childhood, ah, nerd rage. Well, like so. I said, so therefore they they managed to get rid of those old fans that were just causing them problems. Mm, but they didn't bring the new ones in. <laughs> oops, well, oops. Well, that's you know, there's there's the downside to everything. Because mm-hmm. that's and, that's yeah. I think that's the hang up for your Marvel and DC is they have to find a way to get out of the comic shops now. Yes, we'll get back out of them, yeah. Mm. Um, but the problem is is that there aren't really, from what I know, there aren't really newsstands anymore. I mean, the only way out of the comic shops would be either online, which they're doing. I mean, they could go into the, the checkout counters at, you know, 7-Elevens, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So that kind of thing. That would work. Well, yeah. Um, hmm. yeah, that's that's kind of about it. Cause they... mean, there's... Oh, go ahead. I mean, there's not that many places to go. No, and when they go online, what they're doing is... Like here, an issue of a Marvel comic costs like five bucks. Right. For me to go download, it's like four bucks. Well, you know, it, it it's not really. Well, yes and no. I mean, I imagine. Let's see. Um, DC online. Let's see. I hope I don't. Uh, just going to quickly. No, I don't want the. There's DC Universe online. No, that's the actual. That's the role playing game. Yeah. Uh, what do they call it? DC Direct, is it? Oh, I think it might be, yeah. DC Direct. Let's take a look. Yes, there we go. Uh, no, DC Direct is the, the toys one. Okay. okay. <laughs> uh, what, what do they, what do they call it? DC <laughs> Comics? Because I know they both have them. They uh-huh. both, Marvel and DC have DC, okay, just DC Comics. Let's just look at DC Comics, okay. <laughs> All right, I think, so. I think we're also finding another problem with finding them online. Well, because the one is yeah. The okay, we won't worry about that. Okay, comics. Um, let's say which. Let's take a look. So we're looking at Teen Titans Go. We're looking at uh, Trinity Hanna Barbera comics. Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. They're doing a whole bunch of Hanna Barbera comics and such. I mean, but let's see. Is there where can I find digital comics? Okay, digital comics. There we go. Um, can I, they've got all these digital comics. Okay. Let's look at the Teen Titans Omnibus. Okay. Let's take a look. And let's say I want to read the Teen Titans Omnibus. Okay. Oh wait, this is the one book for sale, $75. Okay. Mm -hmm. No, I want digital online. Isn't it? Let's browse comics. Maybe that's on, not online. Okay. Uh, I want to read online comic books. Where do I go? Um, let's see. Bane Conquest. Okay. We'll try that. Three ninety nine available now. Buy now. Uh, Barnes and Noble. Wait. Okay. Wait. I can buy digital. Amazon and other things. Okay. Is there no subscription service? Do I have to pay? You're right. Four bucks to buy a comic. To buy a digital copy copy of a comic. Mm-hmm. That, that would I have to pay. That yeah, and that's the problem is because an actual copy doesn't cost that much more. So. Right. Yeah. Why would? Well, I guess it's just convenience. Okay, Marvel Comics. Let's go see, because I, I know Marvel should have a like a subscription service. I know I knew I thought both of them did, but maybe I'm just completely wrong at this point. Uh, Marvel. I thought they Marvel did for Comics. a while. 
any i don't know if they still do because there were problems with both of them when they first started okay marvel insider okay best-selling digital comics free and marvel oh marvel unlimited that's what it's called Mm. there it is marvel unlimited okay so let's take a look so uh oh i can read marvel's m&m's comic oh okay okay let's go to let's see marvel okay no better yet let's just go to marvel unlimited okay here we go Access to 200,000 plus digital comics, uh, sorry, 20,000 plus digital comics, nine ninety nine a month. Mm-hmm. That's not bad. Or $69 a year, or nine, sorry, $69 a year for annual membership, or are they called annual plus? $99 a year, but I think, but there's some attachments to it. It comes with a whole lot of extra, including exclusive Eye of Agamotto pin and Wakandan flag patch hmm. if you sign up for annual plus. Okay, because I know DC is planning something like that because they're actually producing some, t- they're actually producing like a Teen Titans TV show and a new young season of Young Justice, right. specifically to go along with their online service. Hmm. So I don't know. I thought that they did have their online, um, that their online subscription as well. Okay, wait, let's try subscription. Oh, there's a Justice League Power Rangers co- combo. Ooh, weird. Something I don't want to read. (laughs) Okay, I'll save that for later. Anyway, so, okay, so, um, I don't know. It looks like, as far as I can tell, I guess DC doesn't have any kind of, like, online service. Right. Not that I can find, anyway. Uh, Free comics, digital first, top selling... But I don't. I'm not seeing anything that looks like the Marvel All You Can Eat, you know, Netflix subscription model. It seems to be digital first. Maybe that's it. Um, digital first. They're all like ninety nine cents a pop. That's not bad. So again, they're charging me for them individually. They're not letting me you know, like all you can eat. Mm-hmm. Which okay, maybe that okay. They're taking different approaches. All right, that's that's fine. That's you know they can do that. Right. Uh, but. So there's there's the current state of comics basically. Okay. Hmm. I uh, apparently I can get all the Marvel comics I want for nine ninety nine a month, but DC is charging me ninety nine cents each for a digital copy that I can only read on their site. Yeah, that's... or using their browser thingy. Yeah, that's kind of kind of harsh. But even then, like a a buck isn't bad. But mm-hmm. it, you have to you kind of you don't get your yep. own digital copy of it, so that's sort of uh, limiting. Meanwhile, going back to something we said earlier, Archie is still selling a shit ton of books. Yeah, no kidding. I think at this point, Archie's winning. I I would say so. I mean, at this point, I would almost argue that Archie will probably be in print longer than Batman or Superman. I could actually see that happening. Um, Who knows? Actually, there keeps being rumors that... that at this point, that uh, Marvel is literally just going to sh- uh, be shut down. Like that the studio side, because they're not making any money from the comics, are just basically going to shut the comics down. Right. And uh, just cancel the whole thing. The only flaw with that plan I could see is I thought that the comics existed to keep keep the rights to a lot of those characters from falling back into the hands of their creators. Right. As that's that's why those char- a lot of these weird characters have to pop up at least once every couple years to basically to, so that Marvel can keep the rights. If they don't keep them in print, I think at that point, now mind you, a lot of the original creators are either dead or quite old at this point. Mm-hmm. But um, I think there are some issues that may pop up that they may or may not see coming. Yeah. It, 
So that would be the one reason why I could possibly see, you know, Marvel and DC still, you know, sticking around for a while, if for no other reason than just act as uh, content factories and maybe occasionally produce some, like, new content that they could, you know, sell in another medium. Yeah, it could. I think you're going to, tying in with what you're saying, I wouldn't be surprised if you saw some kind of uh, relicensing happening. Right. To, I can see that. To that. But yeah, because I, I don't think... Part of the problem, too, with, with your Marvels or your DCs is they're part of these giant conglomerates. Mm-hmm. So the home office doesn't probably doesn't care what the comics division does anymore because they're, they're not making any money. Yeah, that's true. That, I mean, well, they're not, DC's not making much money from the movies either, but... Yeah, yeah but that's the thing. Like, you get to, uh, you get to like, say, Marvel now. I mean, the, the head of DC... Not the head of uh, Disney's probably going... Uh, comic books we still do those what you know yeah exactly oh we're still well maybe i mean they (laughs) discovered that movie franchises are where it's at but the problem is is that as we've already pointed out superheroes are one of those things i know jack's gonna tease me for this but they are cyclical (laughs) yeah and even superhero movies are cyclical eventually people are gonna get sick of them yeah i i keep saying that because i know someday it's gonna be true um (laughs) and and at that point, it's like, well, what's, what are they going to do then? I mean, they'll probably just keep producing cartoons for TV or something. Because there'll always be a love for these characters, I yeah. think, to one form or another. Yeah, I think you can look at it the other way around, too, though. Mm-hmm. That all it really takes is uh, for the comic books to take off again would be mm-hmm. for somebody to happen to do something as a comic book for, for some company and it takes off. Right. Like, thanks to the uh, the Japanese boom from, like, the, the late 90s, early 2000s, mm-hmm. you've, you've got a, uh, a generation of kids who aren't terrified of comic books, that they don't think a comic book is inherently something weird or, or geeky or just for kids or that. Oh, no, it's just their common culture now. Yeah, and, and all it takes is, yeah, if one person does that one thing that manages to hit and mm-hmm. you'll see like a whole new big boom period, I think. Okay, well, I think that's a good point to end this on. Hmm. Um, and hopefully that exact thing will eventually happen. Could be Archie. Um, probably Archie, Arch- exactly. Archie seems to be heading that way. Well, pretty much. <laughs> I think in the end, I still think Archie's going to win. All right, maybe we'll do an episode on Archie. Just Archie at some point, I think, just to talk about it. I think that would be fun. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so thanks for listening, folks. I know it's been a long one. Uh, I hope this has been somewhat uh, educational. I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, <laughs> keep reading comics. That's all I have to say. <laughs> or not. It's up to you. One day Archie will rule all. Most likely. Good night, <laughs> folks. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!